What do you do with a prisoner who just doesn't care about following prison rules? A prisoner who refuses to show respect for the warden or the guards or other inmates? Someone who keeps running criminal activities from the inside? Someone who won't stop trying to escape? Someone who attacks and or kills other inmates and guards? What if your prison doesn't have the room to always keep a prisoner like that isolated? What if even in isolation, they still cause problems? From August of 1934 to March of 1963, what America did with those prisoners was send them to Alcatraz. For just under three decades, the rock, as it was commonly known, was the end of the line for especially unruly and or dangerous inmates and for escape risks. Also known as America's Devil Island, Alcatraz was designed to break your spirit, to make you think there was zero chance that you could escape, to make you believe that if you didn't conform, that if you didn't behave, that if you didn't fall in line and do exactly what was being asked of you by prison officials, your life was going to be utterly miserable. There was no tolerance for troublemakers on the rock. Alcatraz was best known for taking America's most notorious troublemakers, men like mafia boss Al Capone and infamous bank robber and kidnapper George Machine Gun Kelly, the first public enemy number one and turning them into just another inmate, just another number. On Alcatraz, these men would learn there would be no chance of them ever running the joint getting preferential treatment, or of them ever having their underworld associates help break them out. They would follow the warden's rules or they would be punished, period. The Rock had the reputation of being a cold, impenetrable concrete fortress. A small island in the middle of the San Francisco Bay initially served as the first lighthouse of the American West, then as a military fortification, then as a military prison, followed by a maximum security federal prison until it was closed in 1963. And now it's a park where people like me can get a tour of what life used to be like for some of America's most hardened criminals. Today, I'll take you on a tour of what life was like for the average inmate on Alcatraz. We'll meet some of the most colorful characters who once called the rock home. We'll examine all 14 of the escape attempts made from Alcatraz and try and determine if anyone actually ever lived once they broke free. And we'll learn a little about life on Alcatraz before and after it was America's most infamous prison. Today, we suck the rock, the prison not the actor and former wrestler Dwayne Johnson, on this infamous, notorious, inescapable true crime edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Welcome to this weekly meeting of the Cult of the Curious. Thanks for stepping into the Suck Dungeon for a little listen. Hail all of our gods, Nimrod, Lucifina, Bojangles, and Triple M. Talking about the San Francisco Bay today and doing stand-up shows at Cobb's Comedy Club in San Francisco this weekend, October 8th and 9th. Looking forward to laughing again in uh, San Francisco. And then again, the following weekend in Spokane, Washington, October 15th, 16th, and 17th. Then Kansas City, October 22nd to the 24th. I think all the Kansas City shows are already sold out. If there's any tickets left, it's just a few on Sunday. Going to be wild. Uh, more Symphony of Insanity tour dates at dancummins.tv. Uh, minimalist retro time suck t-shirt and coffee mug in the store at badmagicmerch.com right now. Logan Keith, the art warlock, the merch wizard, always brewing up something new. Uh, for the October Bad Magic Charity of the Month, we'll be donating somewhere around 15400 I'll know the exact amount next week, to Rain with two N's, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, America's largest anti-sexual violence organization. Rain created and operates the National Sexual Assault Hotline 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 1-800-656-HOPE. Also runs a 24-7 chat room, online.rain2ends.org. Uh, also, rain.org slash ES uh, for, uh, you know, rain services in Espanol. 
uh, in partnership with more than a thousand local sexual assault service providers across the country to help abuse victims in a variety of ways. And they do so much more. Go to rain, R-A-I-N-N.org to learn more. Proud to help these fine meat sacks help so many others. And now let's, and now let's hop aboard Triple M's yacht and boat on out to the rock. Alcatraz, our subject today, thanks to it being another Patreon Space Lizard topic vote winner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you, Space Lizards, for your intergalactic wisdom, for steering the will of Nimrod towards this interesting subject. Uh, Alcatraz has to be overall America's most famous 20th century prison, right? I, I think the most famous slash infamous prison in America's uh, history. Pre-COVID for many years, it averaged roughly 1.4 million visitors a year. On prisonhistory.net, under the submenu of the world's most famous prisons, it's listed as number one, right ahead of Devil's Island, a nickname tossed around for Alcatraz a bit uh, because of the two prison similarities. That Devil's Island, established by uh, French Emperor Napoleon III's government in 1852, was a small penal colony, little island in French Guyana, right off the coast that remained in use for a full century. I'll talk a little bit about that other Devil's Island later. Since it closed in 1963, the island prison of Alcatraz's Mythos, has only grown. The American English pronunciation of mythos, right there, by the way. It, it plays, it plays. Uh, well, Alcatraz has often been described as a place built to house America's most violent, most dangerous criminals. That, that's not exactly true. Not the way it's portrayed. A number of those criminals did stay there, but, but that's not why it was built. Most of the almost 1,600 inmates that made the rock their home were simply prisoners, prisoners who just refused to conform to the rules and regulations of other federal prisons. They weren't necessarily violent or, or dangerous men, uh, or they were prisoners who kept trying to escape from other prisoners, uh, from other prisons. Uh, maybe sometimes, you know, they were uh, prisoners who were especially violent towards other inmates or prison officials while in prison. It soon became known as the prison system's last resort, right? The place where the hardest to deal with prisoners were sent to be harshly reformed, to be brought in line, to be put in place where they could uh, cause the least amount of trouble. Uh, but it wasn't like uh, if you were, say, a serial killer, you automatically had to be sent to the rock because you were just so dangerous and so violent and that's where you had to go. No, you might get sent to another big federal prison and stay there for your whole sentence, like uh, like in Atlanta, where a lot of Alcatraz inmates would be transferred in from uh, the U.S. penitentiary in Atlanta. Medium security prison now, but it used to be a high security federal penitentiary. And if you got sent there or some other big federal prison, like, uh, you know, the one in Leavenworth, Kansas, or McNeil Island, you know, in Washington State, uh, you know, and you behaved if you didn't try to escape, kill other inmates, or try to kill the guards and or always make their lives miserable, well, then you got to remain there for the duration of your sentence. But if you just couldn't stop fucking up, if you just couldn't stop causing problems and trying to break out, if you're a naughty, naughty boy, well, then you got sent to The Rock. And it was always boy, male inmates only. The Rock, never a woman's prison. Uh, the Rock broke down a lot of prisoners. No one ever escaped and lived, or did they? A couple inmates might have pulled that off. Talk about that today as well. Uh, here's how we're going to break down The Rock this week. To start, I'm going to share a firsthand account of what life was like there in 1938. An article sent to Reader's Digest, of all places. I would have never guessed that my favorite source for any weekly episode would be Reader's Digest. You know, unless I do like a topic on like, you know, uh, casserole recipes or something. But no, it's a great, great... Uh, account. It's one former inmate's assessment slash opinion. So take it with a grain of salt, but he did for sure stay there for almost two years. And he was a fed and he was, yeah. And he was in federal prison before that for an additional 10 years. Next, I'll share some basic facts about Alcatraz so we can properly wrap our minds around how it was uh, set up, how big the cells are, what the rules were, uh, what the daily routine was for inmates, why it was so especially hard to escape, et cetera, et cetera. 
Then we'll meet a few of its most infamous prisoners. Al Capone, Machine Gun Kelly, the one who did not sell a lot of records but was actually gangsta. Uh, Robert Stroud, the Birdman of Alcatraz. And Roy Gardner, my favorite this week. Perhaps a name you've never heard of, but not because his criminal exploits weren't as legendary as the other guys I just named, if not more so. He might be one of the world's greatest escape artists ever. Maybe the greatest. Dude put drug lord and master tunneler, previous suck subject, Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, to shame in many ways. And then it'll be timeline time. A little baby timeline today, where we learn about the history of Alcatraz Island, what it was before being a prison, what it is now. I'll lay out some of the major events that have happened there over the years, including going into more detail on the escape attempts. And then I'll wrap up today's show and we'll learn one more piece of interesting trivia in the fifth takeaway. Let's get started with that old Reader's Digest 1938 submission. It appeared in the April issue of that year, written by former Alcatraz inmate number 293, Brian Conway. T.H. Alexander, the author and Reader's Digest editor, who uh, transcribed Conway's account, made a point of giving credibility to this ex-prisoner, saying, I know that Brian Conway comes from an excellent family and that his army record in France was good. Some of his comrades in AEF base told me Con- in the AEF base told me Conway's reputation was a dangerous man, but not a liar. So allow me to play an old classic tune, provide uh, you know the proper background music for Brian's first hand first hand account of life on the rock. <laughs> my first day on the island they made me hand over all my belongings. I cared about on the outside, uh, my big red curly wig, bowling pins for juggling, uh, my makeup kit, mostly white face paint. <laughs> My blue pump size 73 shoes, uh, rainbow suspenders, tiny bowler hat, a uh, huge bow tie, white gloves, red squeaky nose, <laughs> a sunflower water squirter, hand buzzer, <laughs> 45 handkerchiefs all tied together, floor form rag, uh, restraint zip ties, <laughs> 13 inch surgical blade, duct tape, uh, silver, uh, jewelry, a silver jewelry case for my, my trophy teeth. <laughs> oh, that's just, no, nah, it's fucking nonsense. Ah, oh, gosh dang, that's, uh, that's not what he's talking about. No, uh, <laughs> Maybe he was a clown. Maybe he wasn't. Here's the real letter written in 1938 by Brian Conway uh, with background music that's not as obnoxious and, you know, uh, suits suits the story uh, much, much better. One who has just finished as I have a 12-year stretch for murder generally tries to soften the facts in his record. Personally, I have no alibi to advance. I killed an army sergeant to protect my own life. I served 10 years in Atlanta Federal Penitentiary, which was bad enough in 20 months in Alcatraz Prison which was worse. Huh. Funny how he opens with his tone of, I have nothing to hide. I killed him. I'm not going to try and make you think that I'm <laughs> not some kind of cold-blooded murderer, you know, like a lot of guys would do. I'm not going to grovel. But then uh, he immediately adds, I mean, I killed him to protect my own life. I mean, I'm innocent. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a bad guy. Sure, I'm a murderer. Uh, then he writes, By comparison with Alcatraz prison, life was soft in Atlanta. The routine was not so deadly, and the men had a chance to make a few dollars in the mills with which to buy candy and cigarettes. If they had more money, they could get other privileges too. Al Capone, for instance, lived like a king in Atlanta. And it was reported among us that he had money brought in from Chicago by the suitcase full. I saw several $100 bills, which convicts told me Capone had given them for favors. And I know that he had a bodyguard composed of convicts. It was right comical to see Capone exercising in the yard, surrounded by his guard, every one of whom had a long knife or a blackjack. Such weapons were plentiful in Atlanta at that time. Uh, blackjack, some type of club, by the way. Bludgeoning object, basically a real dense thumping stick. It's going to leave a nice lump on someone's head who doesn't get it. Maybe cracks their skull open like a pinata. Brian continues. All my friends had warned me against Capone. 
He is as unpopular at Alcatraz as he was at, at Atlanta. Not because of the crimes with which he was charged, but because he is a weakling and can't take it. Holy shit. A weakling who can't take it. 1938 was a rough-ass year for Capone. He had just gotten diagnosed with advanced syphilis two months before this article was published. He'd been on the rock since 1934. His mind was starting to deteriorate. Now the most famous gangster of the 20th century is getting basically called out for being a whiny little bitch <laughs> in a massive publication with a circulation of roughly 20 million at that time. And if 20 million households were getting Reader's Digest, that means it was uh, being read by what? 50, maybe 60 million people at least. Uh, guessing Capone was a little bit furious, a little bit sad when that issue showed up in prison. Big Al, Scarface, got a nice shout out from your old buddy Brian, Reader's Digest. He pays his respects, you fucking snivelly syphilis dick crybaby. Uh, Brian continues. Some sentimental people like to think that kidnappers and murderers are looked down on by other prisoners. This simply isn't true. Some of the most popular prisoners at Alcatraz are kidnappers. Alvin Karpis, Doc Barker, Machine Gun Kelly, for example. Old-time wardens say that murderers are the aristocrats of crime. Speaking by and large, there is no grading of prisoners by any social caste system set up by themselves, with one notable exception. In any American prison, the men committed for sex crimes are not accepted in the company of the so-called decent element of criminals. Fuck yeah. The reason, however, is not that they have committed revolting crimes, but they are unstable, unreliable, and often actually insane. Interesting. From all I can learn, I was transferred from Atlanta because I would not testify as the government wanted me to at the trial of a convict who had stabbed another to death. See, I'm a good guy. The only reason I got sent there is, you know, because I wouldn't snitch. All right. The first glimpse of Alcatraz prison fills a convict with grim forebodings. That bare rock rising out of San Francisco Bay has little vegetation. It is subject to fogs and damp winds. I've seen guards wearing overcoats in midsummer. Well, that is San Francisco for you. I love San Fran. Been traveling to uh, San Francisco for stand-up shows for years. When I first started coming, I remember being so surprised by how chilly it could be in the summer. Uh, it's not that far north of L.A. It never gets that cold in San Francisco, but it also rarely gets hot. Average high in August, hottest month of the year, only 72 degrees. Surprisingly cold, I think. Only 15 degrees warmer than January, the coldest month of the year. Average low in August, 57 degrees. Add a cool breeze coming off the bay, and well, that's, it gets a bit nippy. It's it chilly. Uh, I feel like it's uh, damn near always hoodie and jeans weather in San Francisco. Brian continues. I am certain that part of the convict's dread of Alcatraz prison is due to the adroit propaganda regarding the terrors of the rock. In my cell block, I was given a warm welcome by the convicts who seemed to know all about me. When I expressed amazement at their accurate knowledge, a convict in a cell near me whispered, We knew you were coming last week, and we knew you were a right guy, because you wouldn't squeal on a pal. The mysterious grapevine telegraph, which does so many queer things in prisons, works almost entirely through bribery of guards or of convicts who have privileges. At Alcatraz, despite the lack of radio and newspapers, we followed the wars in China and Spain. We learned sometimes of news and changes in American prisons even before they were officially announced. First bell rang at 6 a.m. If it was your day to shave, you laid a matchbox outside the cell grill and a guard put a razor blade on it. A man had to shave in two or three minutes for the blade had to be back on the little shelf when the guard returned. The 620 bell was the signal for the count of prisoners, a really serious business which is done every 30 minutes. Breakfast at 6.30 usually consists of coffee, coffee cake, and cereal. Food at Alcatraz is much better than usual prison fare. For dinner, there's meat, beans, coffee, bread, celery. For supper, chili, tomatoes, and apples with hot tea. Seated at the same table with me were Machine Gun Kelly, Albert Bates, and others well-known to the front page. And although talking at meals is prohibited 
the men do manage to speak in a grumbling monotone out of the corners of their mouths. Uh, we'll cover this whole no-talking policy. It didn't last for the entirety of Alcatraz's existence a bit later. Uh, they're Alcatraz's first warden, a, a real no-nonsense guy. Uh, doesn't sound like someone that you'd probably uh, enjoy having a, a stiff drink with. Sounds like a real, real hard ass. Uh, Brian then writes, I was assigned to work in the laundry and I received a cordial welcome from the men there when I reported for duty. Al Capone remembered me from Atlanta, but I didn't encourage him. When he tried to give me a magazine, I refused it and said, dummy up, Al, dummy up. This is prison slang, meaning don't speak to me. Capone looked at me for a second and replied as he turned away, okay, pal. Capone gets lonesome because he doesn't come in contact with many other men. He has lost weight, is said to be in mortal fear for his life, and is deprived of all the privileges he used to purchase at Atlanta. Goddamn. Capone getting fucking hammered in this article. Old syphilis dick crybaby. Just getting continually kicked while he's down. Brian really does it out for Capone. My first day I encountered the electric device commonly known as the snitch box, which was designed to detect any metal on the person of prisoners as they passed through it. The only time I ever saw men laughing at Alcatraz prison was over these snitch boxes. One day the snitch box sounded an alarm on every man who came from the laundry. The guards jerked each man out of line, searched him and found nothing. It took hours to locate the trouble, which was merely that the machine was so finely adjusted it was detecting the metal eyelets in the men's shoes. A few days later it was silent when two men passed through with their knives in their pockets. But the guards didn't trust the electric eye. They searched every twelfth man whether the alarm has sounded or not. After we, uh, sounds like they adjusted a little too much the other way. After we were locked in our cells in the evening and until lights out at about 9 o'clock, I wouldn't swear to the exact time because there are no clocks for prisoners at Alcatraz. There was plenty of time for reading. Some magazines are admitted, some are not. The convicts would prefer daily newspapers and detective magazines, which are never allowed. The most prized possessions in Alcatraz prison are newspaper clippings, which are passed from hand to hand until worn out. Most of them concern prison breaks and crimes. We were permitted to write only one letter of not more than two pages each week. They had to be to a blood relative. No inmate could write to a sweetheart. We never saw the incoming letters, just copies or rewrites typed at the prison office. Man, that would mess with my head. Only seeing copies or rewrites of letters my family had sent me. I always wondered like how much was rewritten or if parts were faked, you know, just to fuck with my head. Like what if the letter rewriter just really had it out for you? Just really didn't like you. You know, you get a real letter that your mom has just passed away, you know, and they just fucking throw it away. And then type up a letter supposedly from your mom telling you she's fine, but she hates you, you know, and that your dad isn't your real father. You know, she had an affair with your grandpa and you're an incest baby. Just weird shit like that. Just to fucking ruin your week. Get a letter from your wife telling you that she loves you more than anything. And she just can't wait until you're home when you're released in a year. And then the rewriter just tosses it. You know, now you get, now you get a letter supposedly from your wife telling you that she loves your best friend's dick more than anything. And that she never wants to fucking see you again. I highly, I highly doubt any letters were altered anywhere to that degree, but I mean, who knows? Piss off the wrong person at the prison. Uh, Brian continues. Visiting too is drastically regulated. No visitor is permitted to shake hands with the prisoner or to touch him. Between prisoner and visitor is a screen and glass, and conversation is carried on by shouting through a tube. One guard standing behind the visitor, another behind the convict. God, that fucking sucks. No touching. Just shouting back and forth through a fucking tube. I love you very much, Mildred. And I you, Donald. You are my whole heart. I think about you every day, Mildred. I will not feel complete until I'm, I am in your loving embrace again. What? What, what was that? I, I couldn't hear the last part. I think about you every day and will not feel complete until I am in your loving embrace again. 
What? what? Sorry, Donald. It's really noisy on this side. You want me to get you a rubbing brace? God damn it, Mildred. I think about you and shit. I'm so horny. And then cue the guard dragging him away for fucking cursing and, you know, throwing him in solitary while Mildred cries. Uh, Brian continues. This next bit's fucking crazy. Why do men dread Alcatraz? Because the discipline is as severe as it can possibly be. Literally, you leave all hope behind, for clemency is all but unknown. Only a few short-timers get out. Men go slowly insane under the exquisite torture of restricted and undeviating routine. And not so slowly after that, or at that, because out of a total of 317 prisoners, 14 went violently insane during my last year on The Rock. And any number of others were what we call stir-crazy, going about their familiar routine like punch-drunk boxers. I saw one instance of violent, insa- uh, of violent insanity. A convict working on the dock detail suddenly picked up an axe, laid his left hand on the block, and chopped off every finger. Then he laid his right hand on the block. How's he, how's he holding the axe? axe? Oh, and begged the guard to cut it off, laughing like a demon all the while. This man was still in the hospital when I left. What the shit? Alcatraz fucking drove this guy so mad he fucking cut his fingers off and then begged the guard to cut his other fingers off. Feels like a scene from a horror movie. Now Brian talks about the guards. Next to routine, one of the worst forms of mental torture is the target practice of the guards, carried out right outside the cell house. This is an almost nightly occurrence after the men are locked in their cells. Men cannot sleep with these bombardments going on. The guards always shot at dummies, made in human likeness, and these were left sprawled along the walkway with bullet holes in vital spots as silent object lessons to cons who might think of making a break. Men cannot be held in check always and trouble began to brew at Alcatraz in February 1936 and has continued intermittently to the present day. The mutiny last September was preceded by a demand for the same privileges accorded in other federal prisons. The leaders spent weeks picking their men for the outbreak. You can't trust everybody. And sometimes even the strong weaken and reveal the secrets of their crowd. But almost half the prison population finally joined in. When the work call was sounded on September 15th, five men refused to come out of their cells to work. They were hustled off to solitary confinement. On the following day, 10 men refused to work after they had reached the mat shop, sitting idle at their machines, and 30 men uh, struck in the laundry. By Sunday, 139 men were in mutiny and had been locked up on a diet of bread and water. The men in the solitary confinement cells groaned and shrieked. Officials who asked them to return to work were howled down. Then the officials cut off the water in those cells and conditions due to the lack of sanitation were frightful. The place was a perfect bedlam since the howling, shrieking, and cursing never abated from night to morning. They say in stir that anyone who lives in solitary longer than the time-tried limit of 19 days is tempting death, but dozens of them stuck it out longer. The officials were desperately anxious to end the mutiny because at any moment, a bloody revolt might break out. One day, Warden Johnson was standing in the dining room talking to us while we ate lunch. As the prisoners started marching out of the mess hall, Whitey Phillips, a kidnapper, darted over to the warden, knocked him down, and kicked him in the face, breaking his nose. If this was a signal for a general uprising, it misfired. At once, the guards were on Phillips, and as the prisoners milled about in confusion, an outside guard broke the window glass and stuck his machine gun into the room. The prisoners screaming broke out of line and scurried to cover under tables and chairs. Thus subdued, they were lined up and marched quietly to their cells. Man, gave the warden a beatdown. Guessing he might have gotten a beatdown later for that, maybe in solitary. Uh, Whitey was 24 years old when he did that. The warden was 63 uh, Whitey had been transferred from Leavenworth to Alcatraz, October 26, 1935, after having been in Leavenworth just a few months. He'd robbed Chandler Bank in the little city of Lyons, Kansas, in February that year. Shortly after being incarcerated, somebody ratted on him for planning to commit a violent escape to rob that same bank again. 
When he robbed it the first time, he'd taken two hostages, uh, hostages and fled in a stolen car. Seen, obviously, as an escape risk in addition to being highly violent. He, went, he was sent to the rock and he beat the warden's ass in 1936. After all that, he would make parole in 1952 when he was just 40. Lived the rest of his life uh, just outside the little town of Yates Center, Kansas, keeping to himself in his trailer, reading a lot, dying in 1999 at the age of 87. Apparently, no one in Yates Center knew he'd spent time in prison until after his death. Back to Brian's account now of life on the rock. Shortly after that, solitary confinement effectively broke the mutiny. One by one, the men began to abandon the strike, driven out by hunger, despair, and the terrible stench. Although when I left the prison in November, five stout souls were still holding out in solitary. The plan for the next mutiny is clever. The men have decided that the vulnerable spot, vulnerable spot in Alcatraz prison is the shops, especially those having contact work, which must meet a delivery schedule or contract work. Hence, they will begin by suddenly wrecking the machinery. They think they can gain concessions by this, and they figure they have nothing to lose. What, for instance, has a man got to look forward to when he has three or more life sentences hanging over him? Most of them felt as I did. Had I known 11 years ago what I know now about prisons, I'd have insisted on the death sentence. Ah, he ratted on him. At the end there. A little bit dramatic at the end. I mean, he just got released from prison after 12 years. How is that worse than the death penalty? Uh, But interesting account. Maybe the editor added that cute little cautionary tale ending. Uh, Now, after hearing about what Brian thought about life on The Rock, let's look into some specs of The Rock, uh, other Alcatraz facts. Very small island, located just one and a quarter mile offshore from San Francisco, California. According to a 1971 documentary on the history of Alcatraz, it measures 16 or 1,675 feet, you know, roughly 511 meters uh, long by 590 feet, roughly 180 meters wide. It is 135 feet. Uh, slash 41 meters, you know, high at its highest point during mean tide. Not a real big island. A little over five and a half football fields long, uh, almost exactly two football fields wide. Not a perfect rectangle, but pretty close. Kind of like a stretched out oval, a little skinnier on the north side. Total area of the island, just over 22 acres. Small island unpopulated when Spanish explorers first encountered it. Has had a lot of people live around it for the better part, uh, better part of two centuries now. For many centuries before that, various tribes lived in the San Francisco Bay Area, like the uh, Ohlone peoples, also various bands of Wapo, uh, Miwok, and Pomo peoples. During the last run of Alcatraz as an actual working prison in the early 1960s, there were between 2.6 and 3.5 million residents in the Bay Area. So strange for me to think about being on an island, uh, you know, in prison, looking out from the wreck yard, seeing this great big city less than a mile and a half away, seeing the downtown of a great big city where if you could just make it there, you could disappear into the crowd seems like it would add to the suffering in a way that, you know, being in a prison out in the middle of nowhere would not. Like, I imagine you could hear the city sounds at that distance. You could see people on their boats zipping by. You could see and hear so much life being lived by people who were free. Today, there are over 8.7 million in the region, which includes San Jose and Oakland, 4.6 million in the San Francisco metro area alone. The city of San Francisco itself has about 883,000 folks living within it. Under a million for the city proper is less than I expected, but uh, only because geographically, it's just not that big. It's the second most densely populated large city in the country behind New York City. Also random, did you know that the official name for San Francisco, Spanish for St. Francis, is the city and county of San Francisco? I did not. Uh, it's the only consolidated city county in California. The city and county, one in the same boundaries and one government for both city and county. Very unusual structure. But we're not talking about local government structure today. We're talking about prison. As a federal prison, Alcatraz only uh, has ever housed a tiny fraction of the nation's criminals. The highest number of inmates ever recorded at once, there are just 302. Lowest number, 222. 
Average number of inmates during the 29 years of service, around 260. Uh, in 1960 alone, there were more than 212,000 federally incarcerated inmates, inmates in all of America. Um, there were approximately, yeah, 1,545 total men in prison there over the years. And I say approximately because the National Park Service, which controls the remains of Alcatraz now, has indicated that while 1,576, you know, different numbers were issued, only or over 30 convicts, you know, returned to Alcatraz with, you know, uh, different numbers. Uh, to illustrate how, how small that prison population is, back in 2019, another famous and still operating California prison, San Quentin, had around 3,500 inmates. Uh, that's the prison where last week's suck subject William, the, the freeway killer Bonin, was executed. Oh, Billy Gutterballs, son of bingo hustlers. The largest correctional facility in the U.S. by population is the Louisiana State Penitentiary, currently housing over 5,000 inmates. Alcatraz had uh, several different layouts over time as many construction projects were done, the labor often coming from the inmates themselves. The prison was, still is, by far the biggest building on the island. Uh, built mostly out of concrete, the 500-foot-long concrete main building was the largest concrete building in the world upon its completion. Construction expert Major Reuben B. Turner rebuilt the prison on the foundation of a former military prison for $250,000. Uh, built as a 600-cell block surrounded by a 500-foot-long concrete structure, no cell walls on the edge were on the edge of the prison to help prevent escapes. Like if you chiseled through your cell wall somehow, you weren't just going to pop out onto the beach. Alcatraz cells didn't have individual doors. This was a big innovative feature that added to the lore of Alcatraz's inescapability, uh, making the rock so much harder to break out of. Prison cell bars were built out of toolproof steel, no hacksawing through those bars. And they switched the orientation of, yeah, the cell doors from swinging outward to sliding shut with a pull of a big lever that, you know, would open and close just a big row of cells all at once. A guard would pull that lever, open about a dozen cells at a time, push it back, you know, big clank, lock it shut to su shut all of them in one moment. Uh, out in Kansas, you know, uh, Leavenworth had one inmate, Basil Banghart, who escaped from there three different times. One guy escaped from Leavenworth three different times. Alcatraz, <clears throat> excuse me, would never have an equivalent. Uh, not with its keyless doors, toolproof steel bars, concrete outer shell, island surrounded by cold, powerful current possessing water. Yeah, that big sliding mechanism for the multiple doors is pretty damn clever. Uh, I saw it when my wife, Lindsay, and I, the queen of the suck, uh, went on a tour of Alcatraz back in the fall of 2012, just a few months after we started dating. San Francisco was our first weekend getaway together. I had shows in San Francisco, and one day we took the ferry out to the Rock. Very cool. Check it all out. Alcatraz's three-story cell house had four cell blocks, A, B, C, and D. Among all the cells, each hallway given like a street name like the Sunset Strip. That was D Block. Uh, Park Avenue, Broadway, Times Square, Michigan Ave, Sunrise Alley. Pretty funny. Sunset Strip and Alcatraz, a little bit less fun than the one in L.A., the cells in A block were only used a few times for short-term lockup periods when an inmate did not require full solitary confinement seclusion, but needed to be fully isolated from other inmates. Otherwise, A block was used for non-meat sack storage. A block was never modernized. So it retained its flat strap iron bars, key locks, and spiral staircases from its original use as the original military prison. Most new inmates at Alcatraz were assigned to the second tier of B block. They had quarantine status for their first three months in confinement in Alcatraz not permitted visitors for a minimum of 90 days. The overwhelming majority of prisoners kept in B and C blocks, 336 cells in B and C block. Uh, there were originally 348, but 12 were removed when stairways were installed at the end of each cell block. Uh, two cells on the end of C block were used as restrooms for the guard staff. Each standard cell in B and C blocks, just five feet by nine feet. So small, five feet by nine feet, 45 square feet, which includes your bathroom. Right, the average bedroom is, according to Google, currently about 132 square feet. 
spending year after year in a space about a third the size of the average bedroom. Holy shit. Go fucking stir crazy. As a six foot one inch dude, if I stand in the middle of that cell, I can reach out and touch both side walls easily at the same time with my palms flat on each wall. I got to do that inside uh, one of those cells in the tour. So small with the bed, uh, there's barely enough room to do like pushups, barely enough room to do jumping jacks. Luckily at Alcatraz, you were alone in these tiny cells. Alcatraz had a strict one inmate per cell rule, which was unusual for a federal prison, uh, helped cut down on escape attempts. And, you know, I'm guessing cut uh, way down on uh, butt rape attempts. Guessing there are roughly 100% less butt butt rapes in a single inmate cell than there would be in a double inmate cell. Uh, Willie Radke, a great great depression era gangster who despite being shot eight times overall by police in multiple shootouts, lived to the age of 95. Some of those uh, bullets still in his body when he died. He passed away in 2006. He shared a cell at Alcatraz next to Machine Gun Kelly, old pal and associate of his. And he indicated, he pointed it out in an interview that he never got butt raped <laughs> at Alcatraz. At least not his cell. He said that having your own cell reduced the chances of being sexually violated tremendously. A small man, this was uh, Willie's favorite part of Alcatraz, which to me indicates that he had to deal with that at other prisons. Poor Willie's poop hole. Maybe getting loopholed by some rough roomies back at Leavenworth somewhere. Uh, cells are still tiny today. Uh, the typical prison cell today in the U.S. is eight feet by six feet. <laughs> God dang. Just three square feet bigger than the Alcatraz cell. Uh, due to chronic overcrowding, uh, you also have to typically share that cell with another prisoner, so it's even worse. My loophole just really tightened. I actually just heard a deadbolt lock in my poophole loophole. I didn't even know I had there. Uh, to allow the cell to accommodate both people, prison officials just uh, have a second bunk bed, you know, put it up above the existing bed. They certainly don't remodel the cell to make it, you know, roomier. Fuck. Imagine spending more than half of every day when you include the hours you sleep in a six by eight foot cell with another person. The average six foot tall person, yeah, can can reach, uh, you know, up above their heads to eight feet. So if you're around six foot, you know, lay down on the floor, put your arms out above your head. That's how long this cell is. Then rotate, you know, 90 degrees and don't put your arms out. And that's how wide the cell is. And there's fucking two of you in there. If your cellmate farts, you cannot move far enough away to not smell it. When your cellmate shits, you know, if it's lockdown time, they're going to shit no more than a few feet away from you in full view of you. If they jerk off, you're probably going to fucking see it and hear it. You know, unless you have headphones on and your eyes closed. And what if they do something really annoying? Like just, just whistle all the time or make a repetitive, just a little clicking sound with their tongue or just, just chew gum or something with their mouth open. My misophonia might turn like a two or three year sentence into fucking life for snapping and murdering my cellmate because he won't chew with his fucking mouth closed or his nose whistles when he exhales or something. God, luckily today uh, in general population cell blocks, prisoners are allowed to roam outside of their cells most of the time. But in Alcatraz for a long stretch of time, at least the inmate schedule wasn't exactly the same for its entire history. Uh, Most prisoners locked in their cells after working some kind of prison job by 4.50 p.m. So by five o'clock, They're in for the night and they're not let out until 7 a.m. the following morning. Just over a 14-hour stretch each day stuck in a five-foot by nine-foot cell. Then if your behavior is not great, you haven't earned a job, you might only get, uh, you know, three meals and an hour of rec time a day out of your cell, less than three hours total, so 21 hours a day in that cell. And maybe the dude in the cell directly next to you, maybe his nose whistles, hell on earth. This all makes me want to really not commit felonies. Uh, Not that I was dying to before. Uh, I was in jail for one night after DUI back in 2010 and I was in a holding tank alone and it was fairly roomy and I was annoyed the whole time because it was cold. Uh, they kept waking me up when I tried to sleep. I couldn't have my phone. I was just fucking one night and it sucked. 
quote unquote hard time would truly be so fucking hard to get through. Remember that the next time you want to punch some stranger for being a douchebag at the bar. Maybe they said something shitty to you. Well, being insulted, uh, you know, maybe better than punching him, having him fall, crack his head on something in a freak accident. Then you go to prison for manslaughter and you end up in one type of these, uh, you know, some type of cell like this for, for years, you know, bunking with old fucking whistle notes. No, thank you. Maybe try saying that to the judge of your sentencing trial if you do get caught. No, thank you, your honor. I don't, I don't want to. No, it sounds horrible. I said, no, thank you. Uh, and then there's solitary. And Alcatraz in solitary, you're in a cell with windowless walls, big steel door, tiny window that's shut most of the time instead of bars. You're in there 24 hours a day. It's fucking dark. You can't talk to anyone else. Can't see anything. Ah, a few sources claim they, uh, you know, yeah, they just leave you in there in the dark and then sometimes like put a hose to the slot to just spray you down with cold water. Then you just stay in there drenched in the cool, damp San Francisco Bay climate. Only let out once a week for an hour or so of rec time. And even then, not allowed to socialize or play in any games with any uh, other prisoners. You just get to be outside, exercise if you want to, maybe sit in the sun for a second or rain. Fucking gray and cloudy there all the time. Then back to your isolation cell to stew with your thoughts. Not even a book to keep you company. Alcatraz solitary cells were in, yeah, cell block D. You could spend anywhere from a few days to a few weeks. 19 days was the federal legal limit. There are stories of guys being left in there longer. Former inmate Jill, uh, Jim Quillen once said a day in the hole felt like an eternity. There were 36 segregation cells, six solitary confinement cells in D-block. Uh, the segregation cells were basically solitary cells without complete sensory deprivation. All of that, any of that, would be enough to drive a man insane. And apparently solitary did drive some prisoners insane. Uh, normal B and C-block cells as Alcatraz had a small sink with only cold running water, small sleeping cot with what uh, one former inmate described as a dirty, lumpy pillow, and a nasty-ass toilet with no seat. Home sweet home. Make yourself comfortable. Until the 1950s, when prison regulations would change a bit, new inmates could bring nothing with them, and the prison didn't have a goodie shop, so life in these tiny-ass cells pretty damn spartan. You'd always, you'd always get smoke, so, but not much else. Beginning in the 50s, inmates could purchase certain items like textbooks, correspondence courses, musical instruments, magazine subscriptions, etc., and, of course, still those smokes. Uh, many inmates apparently smoked around three packs a day to help pass the time. New inmates once arrived by a boat were strip searched, given a medical exam in a prison uniform, a blue shirt and gray pants, blue and white in later years, cotton long underwear, socks, and a blue handkerchief, uh, the wearing of caps forbidden in the cell house. There was also a dentist, psychiatrist, and doctor, small infirmary. Some prisoners would spend the majority of their sentence in that infirmary, like the Birdman of Alcatraz, who had kidney problems. He spent 11 of his 17 years there. Yes, you know, nicer than a cell. Uh, one of the nicest things Alcatraz had for inmates was a, was a large library. Check out books. It was a privilege. It could be taken away if you fucked up. If you were following the rules, books would be delivered to your cell based on a request card you filled out earlier. When a prisoner working in the library walked by your cell, gave you a request card. You're, you could uh, request taking high school, college courses this way. You could learn to paint, sketch, etc. You know, occupy your mind. All crime-related content, you know, that's uh, off limits. Could not order any true detective type shit. They don't want you getting inspired reading about true crime. Inmates could make money to buy stuff like this, work in various prison jobs. Uh, your behavior had to be good to have uh, most of these jobs. A uh, good behavior could also earn you family visit, visits and access to stuff like playing chess or softball in the rec area. Also, starting in the 50s, you could earn a headset to listen to uh, the radio with. You, know, you could drown out that nose whistler in the cell next to you. You could watch movies once a week in a small auditorium. There was even a prison band for most of the time, Alcatraz was a prison called the Rock Islanders. Noice! A position this band was highly coveted 
because it got you out of your cell a bit more for practices and some performances. According to former guard George Gregory, the band was only a cut above the fourth or fifth grade band, but it did wonders for their self-esteem. I like his brutally honest assessment. Uh, were they good? Aha, uh-huh. to listen to? Oh, God, no. No, it was good for their self-esteem, but not for anyone's ears. Sounded like a bunch of 10-year-olds following the lead of a band director who had a degree in physical education or chemistry, anything but music. The warden liked letting him play because he figured it added to the punishment of the other inmates. The Rock Islanders played on holidays, special events, Sundays in the dining hall. They could only practice between 5.30 and 7.30 p.m., play outside those hours, and your musical instrument would be confiscated. That rule went into effect in 1956. Wasn't there at the beginning. So you know some fucking idiot ruined it for everyone else by just being an asshole and playing super early in the morning or really late at night. Apparently Al Capone begged for a long time to join this band and eventually was allowed in. Uh, guessing he did not play in the band with Brian Conway, our Reader's Digest buddy. Or maybe that's, maybe that's, or maybe he did. Maybe that's why Brian really hated him. Maybe Brian was really into music and, you know, Capone just couldn't keep time. Kept embarrassing him or something. You know, Come on, Al, it's fucking 3-4, not 4-4. Four, four. God damn it. Uh, Scarface once wrote to his son that he learned to play the guitar and the banjo in Alcatraz. You can actually find a picture of him with a banjo online. Pretty funny to see Al Capone hold a banjo in a, in a little prison cell. Also, before he was transferred out, he was learning to play the mandala. Eventually, uh, he learned uh, how to play over 500 songs. Old syphilis dick crybaby Capone. He probably could have learned to play a couple thousand songs if he would have just focused all of his musical energy on the air banjo. Check out this old-timey jail song I learned how to play along with, uh, uh, you know, play along with on the air banjo after taking the A-Hole Air Banjo Academy prison songs of days gone by. This is a great deal. For just $99.99, which I paid in three easy installments, I got six hours worth of lessons on Laserdiscs. Check out how I can uh, solo now over, over Lightning Long John. Mm-hmm. I like to I like to feel it for a second, and then I then I will join in. Uh huh. Okay. Dang dong dang dang dong dang dong dang dang dong dang dong dang 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 Okay, unless you unless you've been listening for a while, that was probably jarring. Actually, it was probably jarring no matter what. We guess not freaked out any pets with an earshot. Also, extra confusing if you're a new listener. Old time suck recurring joke. Ninety nine percent sure that started in the uh, drunk as fuck suck of <laughs> the accident of New Orleans. Uh, of course it did. Of course it started during the drunk suck. The air banjo best played when drunk. Uh, back to the day to day of Alcatraz. Although I could do that all day. I'm not gonna lie to you. I did have fun doing that. Uh, you got three meals a day at Alcatraz. Breakfast, 6.45 a.m. Uh, lunch, 11.40 a.m. Dinner at 4.25 p.m. That's an early-ass dinner. Uh, supposedly the best food in the federal prison system. Uh, you know, it does look pretty good uh, by by looks of the, the, the menus. Some former chefs ended up getting locked up there. Remember, Brian was talking about that, our Reader's Digest buddy. According to a menu from 1946, meals included stewed fruit, split pea soup, apple pie, mashed potatoes, orange rolls, bread and coffee, roast shoulder, et cetera. One lunch I found on an old menu was vegetable soup, boiled corned beef, steamed potatoes, quick cooked cabbage uh, with mustard, bread and tea. Another was vegetable soup, spaghetti, salad, bread, and coffee. I don't think I ever had lunches that nice growing up. I remember being super excited for pigs in a blanket day in my school's hot lunch, right? Little Smokies, little processed sausages wrapped in cheap flour, dipped in ketchup with tater tots and cream corn and some shitty ass milk and a little cardboard box to drink. Delicious! 
Uh, in addition to getting out of your cell for meals, which only lasted 20 to 30 minutes, each prisoner's uh, not in solitary could work a variety of jobs. Yeah, that allowed them to get out of their cells for most of the day. Jobs, of course, allowed them to make money for books, smokes, air banjo tutorials. You know, you get it. You can work in laundry, kitchen, woodworking plant, docks, a few other places. Inmates would head to work directly after breakfast, be done for their working day by dinner, and back in their cells quickly after dinner. Working prisoners could earn two days off their sentence for each month worked during the first year, then four days off each month worked for years two through four, then five days per month for years five and forward. To help make sure prisoners didn't smuggle dangerous contraband uh, from their jobs into their cells, you know, the prison had those three metal detectors, those snitch boxes Brian talked about. Lots of rules, very strict at the Rock. Uh, prisoners could send and receive personal letters, but to blood relatives and, you know, only. Uh, letters were heavily monitored, like I mentioned earlier. They could also uh, send legal correspondence. You know, check it with their attorney, ask the governor for clemency, that sort of thing. Uh, inmates were granted one visit per month. Each visitation had to be approved directly by the warden. No physical contact allowed between inmates and their visitors. Uh, as I talked about, there's that, you know, shitty fucking <laughs> tube they had to yell back and forth from. Then they got an intercom a little bit later. Uh, you know, guards enforced rules, even small ones, more than another prison since Alcatraz was used primarily as a prison to break inmates down so that they, so that they would follow the rules and they could be transferred to another prison uh, where they would now behave. The average Alcatraz stay was around eight years. Interestingly, numerous sources claim that no one was ever sentenced directly to Alcatraz. You know, you got sent somewhere else first and you caused problems. Then you got transferred to Alcatraz. And then almost always you got transferred to another prison eventually at some point when you would leave the rock. Only two men ever paroled directly from Alcatraz to the free world. How did inmates learn about all these rules? The introduction, the introduction to all the rules and regulations, expectations for conduct began with a booklet when prisoners arrived, an Alcatraz orientation book, essentially, that they were to keep in their cells. The rules would change a bit over time, of course. I'm going to share a list uh, put out by Alcatraz Warden Paul J. Madigan by his administration between 1955 and 1961. Warden Madigan, only Alcatraz Warden who worked his way up from the bottom. He's very popular with prisoners, at least as far as wardens went. He was considered a fair man. He started off as a corrections officer in 1930s. Also 1941, Madigan, uh, important in, in quashing an escape attempt after being held hostage in the Model Industries building. Some of Warden Madigan's rules were as follows. This is by no means a, a comprehensive list. Good conduct. Making the most of your Alcatraz experience all starts with what the warden calls good conduct, which is pretty self-explanatory. It means uh, conducting yourself in a quiet and orderly manner and keeping yourself neat, clean, and free from contraband. It meant obeying the rules of the institution and displaying a cooperative attitude. Also meant obeying orders of officials, officers, and other employees without delay or argument. Do what you're told, when you're told, with a fucking smile on your face, or there's going to be trouble. This policy alone, I got to say, would be hard for me to deal with psychologically. I mean, <laughs> even if you never quit, doesn't it feel good at just any job, any job you work, to know that if you really, really want to, you can quit? What if you could not quit your job? Like you literally were not allowed if you tried to, your boss would send a couple fucking goons <laughs> to run you down, wrestle you to the ground, literally fucking shoot you if you won't stop resisting or if you make it out the office doors. And then these goons drag you to like a janitor's closet where they fucking lock you inside for a week as punishment for trying to escape your job. <laughs> That's prison. Uh, you know, and it's a job you hate. It's a job where you have to eat the, the one and only thing they're serving in the prison cafeteria, you know, that, that day or you go hungry. And it's a job, not in Alcatraz, but in most prisons where you have to share a cubicle with a coworker. There's a good chance you can't stand. Ugh. The next rule section is good work record. Uh, this means that the reputation, you know, uh, you establish as a willing, capable workman 
Doing your best at whatever work you're told to do will help your standing at the prison. Both good conduct and good work records constantly are reviewed. When changes are made to work assignments, cell changes, or disciplinary actions, you know, come up, guards take notes. These notes are going to be reviewed. They determine how fucking shitty or not your next job is going to be. Or if you have to sit in your cell all day instead of being able to go to work, uh, the better your conduct and work rec record is, uh, the better you qualify or the you know more likely you'll qualify for a better job. Less harshly, you'll be punished for rule infractions. It paid to be nice in Alcatraz, literally. Uh, next, prisoners read about statutory time, meritorious good time, and industrial good time. Part of Alcatraz's program were incentives for good behavior. You could earn reductions in sentencing by establishing and keeping a good conduct record and a good work record. Right, smart. Give people incentive to not be a fucking problem. Statutory good time meant that just by not causing trouble, you could get some time knocked off your sentence. Just don't be a fucking dick. We'll put that in your file and recommend that to the parole board that they go a little easier on you. Uh, recommendation for time off your sentence could also be taken away if you fuck up and break the rules. All right, they can tell you in one month, okay, we're going to knock some time off your uh, sentence. And you fuck up bad enough, you're like, nah, nah now I just got put back on. Then there was industrial good time. Industrial good time automatically awarded beginning on the first day of employment, continuing as long as inmate is employed by federal prison industries. Now, this means that, you know, you show up, you do your job, you get X amount of days knocked off your sentence, you know, a month as I went over earlier. And then there's meritorious good time, you know, getting your sentence reduced further by just going above and beyond what you've been asked to do. For meritorious good time, the rule book stated that the staff are responsible for recommending meritorious good time based upon work performance. You know, so like basically you get a fucking gold star if you're, if you're doing a really good job. All, all very behaviorist. Be a good rat, move to the cage like we want you to, and you get some cheese. Don't behave like we'd prefer. Well, then you get fucking shocked, okay? Positive and negative reinforcement. Uh, next, the rule book goes over privileges. Basically, you don't have many. It says all inmates are entitled to food, clothing, shelter, and medical attention, nothing more. Everything else is earned through meritocracy. Ooh. Uh, now let's go over discipline, which we already touched on. Discipline was the name of the game on the island. Uh, uh, any type of disciplinary action may result in loss of some or all of a prisoner's privileges and or confinement in the treatment unit. Oh, the treatment unit, a.k.a. solitary, a.k.a. the hole. You could lose your job. You could have time added to your sentence. You could be put in segregation or isolation. The warden or associate warden could punish a prisoner by taking away privileges, like the privilege of sending and receiving mail, having visitors, going in the yard, enjoying books, eating in the dining hall with other inmates. All that shit can be taken away. In the hole, you could expect to see no light, hear no sounds, see no person except for a brief glimpse of a guard twice a day, as I went over earlier. Inmates given this treatment claim to have experienced fucking hallucinations, extreme sensory disorientation. Some of them lost their fucking minds. Had to be, you know, sent to the infirmary for a while afterwards to be treated by psychiatrists because the whole fucked them up so bad. Uh, at first, prisoners in isolation would receive only bread and water. Uh, they'd only get it twice a day. A full meal every third day. Later, uh, you know, the, the rules were amended so prisoners could get a bowl of soup each day with a full meal every second day in addition to bread and water. After the 1936 general strike, Brian talked about, it was claimed that prisoners marched into isolation, uh, uh, that prisoners who were marched into isolation would not receive any food for two days. They made it fucking worse after that. Uh, federal law did mandate that no prisoner could spend more than 19 days in solitary confinement. Man, think about how that would drive you mad. Always cold in there, supposedly. You couldn't get comfortable. There's no soft bed to lay down on when just sleep a lot of it away. Just a stone, just a fucking concrete room with a toilet in the dark living on a little bit of bread and water, no idea how long you've been in there or when you're going to get out. Uh, even worse than the hole were the dungeons. This may just be a myth, but it comes up in enough sources. I should share it with you. There are rumors that some inmates were locked in some kind of fucking primitive dungeons on the island for punishment. The prison had been built on the top of a 19th century military fortress, you know, used to protect the bay. 
Below A block, before the prison was built, was a set of cells used during the prison uh, era, military prison era, known as the Spanish Dungeon. In the late 1930s, it is alleged that the dungeon cells were occasionally used for unmanageable inmates. Allegedly, some former correctional officers have said that they heard or that they were aware that some uh, extremely unmanageable inmates were handcuffed, handcuffed to the bars in the dungeons for extended periods of time. Not sure I believe that, but I don't, maybe. Who knows? Uh, if you fuck up bad enough and say beat the warden down like Whitey Phillips did, you can, of course, also be prosecuted in court for more crimes while incarcerated. Uh, there's the transfer, transfer to other federal institutions section of this uh, orientation book. The book made it clear that you had to stay in good standing for more than a few weeks if you wanted to get the fuck off uh, the rock as well. Now, a transfer required better than average behavior, like good behavior, for several consecutive years. You fuck up bad enough, you go back to zero, and the good boy clock starts all over. And what were the rules about uh, contraband? Anything found on an inmate or in their cell or at their workplace, which was not officially issued to them or officially approved and purchased by the inmate and officially listed on their property card was classified as contraband. Possession of contraband of any sort was a serious offense would result in disciplinary action. See the whole. Stealing anything from other inmates or from employees or from the institution also, quote, severely punished. So was bribing employees and threatening, ridiculing, or attempting to assault officers, officials, employees, or visitors. Other serious offenses included trading, gambling, selling, giving or loading personal property, or government issue items or services or contraband of any kind. Uh, recreation privileges had specific rules as well. As a general rule, inmates would work eight hours a day, five days a week, Saturdays, Sundays, and holidays devoted to recreation. Movies shown twice a month, exercise, yard activities included baseball, handball, and various table games. New, you know, and then new inmates, you know, kept in quarantine, uh, you know, when they first get there, not allowed in the recreation area for, you know, it was 30 days for uh, one part of the prison's, you know, history, 90 days for another. Uh, your orientation book also let you know that Alcatraz made room for con constructive suggestions and legitimate complaints. They had a sort of complaint box. If these were made by an inmate to proper officials, the rules stated that each complaint would receive careful consideration. However, if an inmate made groundless complaints for the purpose of creating dissatisfaction, and or stirring up trouble, pretty subjective. Or if they agitate or rib themselves or others into trouble, more subjective, they were subject to disciplinary action. So if they didn't like your complaint, they could punish you. Interview request slips were uh, the way to ask an official for information or to make a complaint. I doubt many of these complaints were taken very seriously. I picture some guards saying stuff like, uh, Mr. Compone, uh, Mr. Compone, we, we received your complaints about recreation time not being long enough and your pillow being too lumpy. And I sent both of your complaints uh, along to the treatment plant. Uh, what, what kind of treatment plant? The sewage treatment plant. I flush them down the toilet. You syphilis dick crybaby. Shut the fuck up and enjoy the hole. Uh, new inmates were also informed they had a prisoner's trust fund operated like a savings account in a bank, except that it did not draw interest. With the approval of the associate warden, an inmate could authorize the withdrawal of funds from their account for legitimate purposes. You know, like buying smokes or educational materials. Saving money was required by the prison and funds were allowed to be given to dependents. So, you know, that's pretty cool. Not your wife and or kid's fault that you're in prison. I like that they can still get some money from you while, you, you know, when you're working in there. Uh, there were other rules too. Rules about everything from what inmates could wear, what they could own, what they could bring into the bathrooms, you know, when they weren't in their cells, uh, running, uh, you know, not allowed anywhere in the prison, uh, which makes sense. Probably wouldn't want to see inmates training to get faster. Just like you wouldn't want to see them, you know, working on their fucking swim, swim strokes in some kind of prison pool. Uh, loud talking, loitering, visiting on the galleries, stairs, or aisles, not permitted, uh, never permitted to enter another inmate's cell at any time. 
singing, whistling, shouting, even loud talking, not permitted either, unless you're uh, rehearsing with the Island Rockers. No singing is pretty funny. No singing rule. Seemed, seemed needlessly cruel when I first read it, but those cells were so close to uh, so many other cells. You know, you get, you get enough people singing different songs and not well, that's a fucking cacophony of just terror. It's a nightmare for other inmates and guards. Or like, imagine if like the dude in the cell next door to you was a source family cult leader, Father Yod, singing like this. All the power that ever was is still there for you. <laughs> still it's there for you. I mean, how much of that could you take before a riot breaks out? Everything was meant to be kept clean and orderly in a prisoner cell. Diagrams to show how one was expected to store their personal items on a shelf. Nothing allowed to be pasted or tacked onto the walls or shelves either. It wasn't like Shawshank Redemption where you had a fucking poster on the wall. Not allowed. Only a few things uh, were allowed to be on the floor, which included shoes, trash cans, musical instruments, right? Another advantage of the air banjo. Don't have to worry about storing it anywhere. It doesn't take up any space. Another advantage for that top shelf musical instrument. Then you just fucking put it away in your mind. An inmate cell, always subject to search. Anything out of place or extra uh, would be bad for the inmate. So what were inmates allowed to have? Uh, that was listed specifically in the warden's rule book. They could have two shelves, two sheets of stationery in their cell at any time, two envelopes, one can of cleanser, three pencils, one radio headset, one sink stopper, one 75-watt light bulb, four wall pegs, one whisk broom, one lampshade, one roll of toilet paper, one drinking cup, one ashtray, two cleaning rags, and one wastebasket. Also, a maximum of two mattresses, two sheets, two pillows, one to four blankets, two pillowcases. Man, two. Two pillows. Whew, that must have given some uh, Jehovah's Witnesses yeah, a lot of anxiety in there, you know? A lot of sexual temptation. So easily led into sin with that second pillow. What's that for? To put in between your knees? Tell yourself that it's going to help with your back pain? But you know. You know that lumpy-ass prison pillow. It's down there rubbing against your Satan hose. Hey, Alicefina. Uh, as for the bathroom, inmates were allowed to have one shaving cup, two razor blades, one safety razor, one bar of soap, one comb, one shaving brush, one pair of nail clippers, one mirror, one can of tooth powder. <laughs> That's how it's written. I love it. Fucking not even, you don't get toothpaste. No, you don't get toothpaste. That's for free people. You can have some tooth powder, one face towel, one toothbrush, one, one cake of shaving soap. Right when prisoners arrived, they were issued one pair of black and white pants, one cap, one wool coat, one blue shirt, one belt, one pair of shorts, one bathrobe. Uh, three pairs of socks, two handkerchiefs, uh, one raincoat, two pairs of shoes, one wool undershirt, one pair of slippers, and a light undershirt. Everything had to be clearly marked on the inmate's property card, which you had to keep on your cell door. So much regulation, so much incentive to not fuck up again once you're out. Daily routine so highly regimented, right? Wake up bell goes off at 6.30 a.m. on the weekdays, 7.15 on the weekends and holidays. I get to sleep in for another 45 minutes. Not that you fucking care. You just wake up and you're still there. The bell's heard. Inmates are expected to get dressed, clean up their space, make their beds. Next item is the uh, count bell. 20 minutes after the wake-up bell, you're supposed to be, uh, you know, the cell door's open. You go outside your door. You stand there for like a roll call. Then you go straight to the dining room for breakfast by 7 a.m. A lot of specific rules about how to act in the dining room, which included not wasting food, not taking extra portions, not taking food out of the dining room. Uh, for many years, shut the fuck up while you eat. By 7.20 a.m. on weekdays, time to go to work in the laundry, tailor shop, cobbler shop, model shop, gardening or labor details, or any other shops on the island. Throughout the day, just lines and bells. 
lines for the yard, for lunch, for the library, for religious services, for showering. 4.50 p.m., return to their cells, right? That's where prisoners go for final lockup. By 9.30, lights are out. And in the first three years of the prison's operation, there was one more horrible rule. The first warden was a no-nonsense guy, James A. Johnston, and Warden Johnson, uh, Johnson, excuse me, had a silence rule. Prisoners could speak at meals or recreation time, and that was it. Desperate for communication, interaction with other humans, some inmates emptied out water from their toilets and created some kind of primitive communication system through sewage piping, where they could apparently whisper to one another. How terrible and just sad and weird. Just picture two dudes, you know, whispering to each other, you know, the next day in line for breakfast. Just, hey, what happened to you last night? You said you, said you were going to wait in your toilet right after the lights out. I was. I didn't hear anything. Come on. I was whispering in my toilet for at least 10 minutes. Are you, are you sure you called the right toilet? What? Well, to die on my toilet, you got flushed twice real quick. Then you got to do four slow flushes. And that's how you get connected to my toilet. Uh, the quiet rule is apparently taken very seriously. Inmates were disciplined for even minor violations of this code. Previously, Johnson had been a warden first at Folsom Prison for two years, then San Quentin for a decade. Very strict disciplinarian, devout reformist. Uh, he first employed that silence rule at San Quentin. Uh, he's the guy Whitey Phillips beat down in the dining hall, right? Uh, when, uh, when he was 63. Previous to the beatdown, he was known to sit down, eat with the prisoners unguarded. After that beatdown, he did immediately go right back to doing that and never got his ass whooped again. Tough old dude. He also got rid of that silence rule in 1937. Maybe, he was, uh, maybe he's worried about uh, keeping shit so strict that prisoners are going to get so tense he's going to get uh, his ass whooped again. Uh, he would continue to act as warden until 1948, retired at the age of 73. Alcatraz created to be highly structured, monotonous, to teach unruly inmates how to behave. Johnson was apparently very good at that. So how did inmates feel about being incarcerated at the Rock? Overall, they felt, you know, they fucking, they loved it. You know, so many amenities I forgot to mention. Uh, badminton courts, day spa, pool hall, brothel, massage parlor, sushi bar, In-N-Out burgers, Starbucks, 18-hole putt-putt, go-karts, small water park with lazy river, pool with a wave machine. No, they fucking hated it. Uh, made them want to behave. So they get the fuck out of there. Uh, let's get into some of the rest of the layout of Alcatraz now. Talk about the lives of civilians on the island before getting into some pretty crazy escape attempts, some famous inmates, and then the timeline after a sponsor break. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one. Really, they cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter 
Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Thanks for listening, Meat Sacks. Now back to the rock we go. Learn more about how it was laid out and who lived there. Besides the prison itself, there were several other buildings, including the social hall known as the Officers Club. The club was a social venue for the federal penitentiary workers and their families, a place on the island to unwind after a hard week's work dealing with hardened criminals after they've been locked up for the night. Uh, the club had a small bar, a library, large dining and dance floor, billiards table, ping pong table, two-lane bowling alley. Bingo was played there. Fucking two, two weeks in a row, bingo in the suck. What's the universe trying to tell me? That I should abandon my family and hit America's lucrative underground bingo hustler circuit? Maybe. I'll consider it. Social Club regularly hosted dinners and from the uh, 1940s onwards uh, showed movies every Sunday night after they'd been shown to the inmates during the day on Saturday and Sunday. Halloween parties, Christmas parties, all that stuff. There was also a powerhouse, a water tower, a model industries building where laundry was done, a new industries building where they created clothing, furniture, and brushes. There was the warden's house, a three-floor, 15-by-17-room mansion built in either 1921, according to some sources, or 1926, or maybe 1929. Also, living quarters for other non-prisoners. To go with the prison population at any given time, there were about 300 civilians living on Alcatraz that included both women and children. The primary living areas for families were building number 64, three apartment buildings, one large duplex, and four large wooden houses for senior officers and their families. What a weird thing to live on the island, to grow up there. How odd to be able to wave to prisoners, you know, that you guard, you know, wave to them from your fucking yard in front of your house or apartment on your days off. Guessing you uh, got off the island a lot, but you know, what if you wanted to relax at home? And if there was an escape in the middle of the night, how terrifying for you and your family. To live right next to the place where you've been telling murderers and rapists, you know, to shut the fuck up and do as they're told the last couple of years. That would suck to have them know exactly where you live. There was an alarm system and it would sound if, uh, you know, somebody got out and all the civilians were told to run in their homes and lock their doors. Uh, the island has a surprising amount of amenities for, you know, a little space. Families enjoyed, in addition to the social club, a small convenience store. Uh, even had a soda fountain. A little, little malt shop for the kids. It's hilarious to me, hanging out at the Alcatraz malt shop. Good times. Sipping on a chocolate malt, staring out a window at some barbed wire and guard towers. Families did most of their shopping on the mainland since, uh, you know, the prison boat would make 12 scheduled runs to uh, Van Ness Street Pier each day. So that's good. Uh, just a few more details now, then an overview of escape attempts and then meet some famous former prisoners. What about uh, death on the prison island? Alcatraz had no facilities for capital punishment. The death penalty process uh, left to state institutions normally. For Alcatraz, inmates who had been served a death sentence, they would be transferred to San Quentin for execution of the gas chamber there. Eight people were murdered by inmates on Alcatraz, a death sentence of a different kind. Plus five men committed suicide, 15 others died from natural illnesses. Uh, the island did boast its own morgue for these deaths. No autopsies were performed there. 
deceased inmates brought back to the mainland and released to the San Francisco County Coroner. Now, what about escaping the rock? Uh, we'll dig deeper into some of this during the timeline, but the National Prisoner Statistics records uh, indicates that 36 prisoners were involved in various escape attempts during the over 28-year history of Alcatraz operating as a federal prison. Many seem to think that despite a few inmates never being seen again, none of them actually escaped. Uh, not sure I agree. I'll spell out why later. The island was famous mostly for being the hardest prison for America to escape from. Why was it so hard to escape from? Largely because of the chilly waters of the bay around it, plus rumors of man-eating sharks. Uh, the water averages 50 to 55 degrees Fahrenheit year-round, raising up to uh, an average of you know 59 degrees in the hottest part of the summer, briefly. The expected survival time for a person submerged in water between 50 to 60 degrees is anywhere from one to six hours. But a person will probably only stay conscious for one or two hours of that. Plenty of time to swim a mile and a quarter though, right? Well, yes, in easy conditions. But then there's the current. Uh, the current can be very strong depending on the tide. Uh, currents in San Francisco Bay generated by the tides, they can be as strong as six knots. Now, how fast is six knots? Uh, surprisingly, it's approximately a thousand miles an hour. Yeah, you heard me. 1,000 miles per fucking hour. You know how many people slip into the bay and are whisked out to the open ocean at 1,000 miles per hour? 45,000 people a year, still to this day. They don't tell you about that in the brochures. You gotta be very fucking careful on the docks around San Francisco. It's terrifying, especially, uh, you know, when you know that those currents lead directly to sea monsters. The Pacific Ocean, just off the coast of San Francisco, as I've tried to warn people about my whole life, has the highest concentration of krakens in the world. Of course, that's nonsense. Uh, imagine somebody building a city on a bay that dangerous. That's fucking terrifying. Where there's a thousand mile per hour, mile per hour current that takes you directly to sea monsters. That's a nightmare. Uh, no, six knots is about seven miles an hour, which doesn't sound like much, but that's actually a pretty strong current. Uh, a recreational kayak paddler, according to a, 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 a kayak paddling website I found, uh, says that, uh, you know, they paddle about three knots, maybe four if they're terrified or racing. If you're a guy in Alcatraz who hasn't been swimming in years, probably not gonna be able to paddle a lot faster than that. And might have to follow the current for a lot longer than, uh, you know, a little over a mile before you can reach the shore. But, you know, if you're a strong athlete, you can swim from the rock to the shore. Uh, uh, in 2019, a 76-year-old man from Burbank, Jim Zinger, swam from Alcatraz Island to St. Francis Beach, just east of the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, in under an hour, in about 54 minutes. 2016, a nine-year-old boy, James Savage, a fourth grader from Los Banos, California, swam from the shore to Alcatraz, then swam back. Article didn't say how long it took him, but he fucking did it. Today, hundreds, uh, you know, complete the one and a half mile swim. That's, you know, the way they do it there. Uh, annually during the escape from Alcatraz Triathlon, you know, they wear wetsuits, but still they do it. Prior to the federal institution opening in 1934, a teenage girl swam out to the island to prove it was possible. Fitness guru Jack Lane once swam to the island pulling a rowboat. So very possible to do that, to survive the cold waters and fast currents. However, for prisoners who had no control over their diet, no access to many forms of exercise other than, you know, sit-ups and push-ups, no knowledge of high and low tide. That's the big one. Odds for success, still not great. And what about those sharks, man-eating sharks? Prisoners often told that the waters of the bay were infested with sharks. And there are sharks in the bay, but historically, uh, not a lot of man-eating ones. There is actually not a single documented case of literally anyone ever being attacked by a shark anywhere fucking near Alcatraz. So lies and propaganda. Uh, in addition, the water making it hard to escape, uh, you know, the rock guards also trained to be a little extra vigilant. Guards made a total of 13 official counts every 24 hours. In addition, shop foremen made an additional six verification counts daily. Of the 36 men who tried to escape in 14 separate escape attempts, 
including two who tried to escape twice. 23 were caught. Six were shot and killed. Two drowned. Five went missing. Best case, five men escaped. Two of the men who were caught were later executed in the gas chamber at San Quentin for their role in the death of a correctional officer uh, during the infamous Battle of Alcatraz escape attempt. We'll go over in the timeline. Uh, before we hop into that timeline, let's meet some of the more famous or infamous inmates. Most of the, you know, a little over 1,500, a little under 1,600 actually, uh, prisoners incarcerated at the Rock were not well-known gangsters. Just random dudes causing problems at other prisons. The famous guys, the names who uh, whose time spent on the island, you know, went a long way to build up the Alcatraz mythos. Let's meet a few of these cats. Uh, the island's most famous prisoner behind Capone anyway, probably Robert Stroud, the Birdman of Alcatraz. Spent 54 of his 73 years behind bars incarcerated for more than twice as long as he was as he was free. And most of those free years, his childhood. Yee, what a life. Uh, interestingly, the Birdman of Alcatraz never had a bird on the rock. Like, fucking not one. Uh, also not the grandfatherly type person uh, portrayed by Burt Lancaster in the well-known 1962 movie, Birdman of Alcatraz. Uh, born in Seattle in 1890, ran away at the age of 13, soon made it to Alaska Territory where he became a pimp in Juneau. 1909, Stroud was convicted of manslaughter after brutally mur murdering a bartender who allegedly failed to pay a prostitute Stroud was pimping out and also romantically involved with. Then, while serving a 12-year prison sentence on McNeil Island in Washington State, another federal prison, he viciously attacked another inmate with a knife. That resulted in a transfer to Leavenworth. That inmate lived. There, in uh, 1916, he stabbed a guard to death in the chow hall. Convicted of first-degree murder, received a death sentence. His mother pleaded for his life in 1920. President Woodrow Wilson commuted his death sentence to life imprisonment. During his 30 years at Leavenworth, almost all those years spent in solitary confinement, holy shit, uh, developed an interest in birds, which he was allowed to breed and study. Eventually, he wrote two books about canaries and their diseases. So fucking random. Stroud's Digest on the Diseases of Birds, published in 1943, is actually an important work in the field of ornithology. He would raise nearly 300 birds in his cell. Initially, prison officials allowed Stroud's bird studies because, you know, it's seen as a constructive use of his time, better use of his time than, say, planning on how he was going to fucking stab the next guard. However, eventually, contraband items found hidden in his bird cages, and prison officials discovered the equipment Stroud had requested for some scientific studies uh, were actually used for constructing a, a home brew still. He was uh, brewing up some beer in there, or maybe some uh, uh, hard alcohol. You know, for brewing up his, his, his prison liquor, Stroud was transferred to Alcatraz in 1942, where he'd spend the next 17 years. Six of those years in segregation in D-Block, 11 years in the prison hospital. He wrote two books in Alcatraz, Bobby, an autobiography, and Looking Outward, a history of the U.S. prison system from colonial times to the formation of the Bureau of Prisons. And that was, uh, yeah, a history of you know, U.S. prisons up until the 30s. Smart dude. Also a guy diagnosed as a psychopath by a prison psychiatrist in 1943. In 1959, after suffering from kidney problems for years, transferred to the medical center for federal prisoners in Springfield, Missouri, where he died November 21st, 1963. Now let's talk uh, about, uh, you know, uh, one, one of Alcatraz's more famous prisoners, not at Capone level, but pretty famous, James Jimmy Two-Tone Rigetti. Jimmy Two-Tones, excuse me. Jimmy Two-Tones was a uh, Prohibition-era gangster who ran the Bambino Mafia crime family in Nashville, Tennessee in the 1920s and 30s, born in Naples. In 1895, his family settled in Brooklyn. In 1903, he was running with local small-time gangs by 1908 at the age of just 13. Jimmy Two-Tones got his nickname as a teenager. He was a big kid, known for normally having a deep, tougher-sounding voice. You know, so he'd usually talk like, uh, I know it was you, Tony. You dropped a dime on Mickey. You fingered Big Lenny. You're a stool pigeon. 
You squealed like a pig. Now me and the chopper squad are here to put you in a Chicago overcoat. But if he got startled, like if a car backfired, his voice would suddenly kick up into a much higher, much less intimidating tone. Oh, yeah, you're going to join me, Victoria. Guys, you almost gave me to a meat wagon. You see what I mean? There was like the one tougher tone. Get into the struggle, Bunny. Vinny, your bear cave mall squawked. Now we're going we're gonna to put you in the, uh, we knew you, you put Fat Johnny in bracelets. And then there'd be the other less intimidating tone. Oh, don't stick up like a pig, like a sneaky pig now. I thought it was a Batman. What a lot of these three thumbs goons. And that's how James Rigetti became, you know, Jimmy Two-Tones. Uh, JK, gosh dang. Uh, Jimmy Two-Tones never spent time in Alcatraz because he never existed. That was just some weird shit to amuse myself with. I wish he fucking did because that'd be a funny origin story for a Prohibition era gangsters nickname, you know? Uh, ah, no, Alcatraz's most famous prisoner, Al Capone. Scarface. Cooler nickname than Two-Tones. Uh, featured a bit on episode 22 of The Suck, way back in February 13, 2017, uh, Al Capone's Valentine Day's, uh, Day Massacre. Capone is still the most famous of the Rock's residents. In a memoir written by Warden James Johnson, actually, I think it is Johnston. I keep wanting to I keep going back and forth on the tea. He, re- he reminisced about the intensity of public interest around Capone's imprisonment, stating that he was continually barraged with questions about Big Al. Day after day, early in Capone's sentence, newspapers and press flooded his office with phone calls, wanting to know everything from how Capone liked the weather on the rock to what job assignment he was currently holding. Before arriving in Alcatraz, Capone had been a master of manipulating the environment around him in prison, at the, like at the federal penitentiary in Atlanta. In Atlanta, he convinced many of the guards uh, to essentially work for him like he'd done previously during the Cook County, uh, at the Cook County Jail. His cell boasted expensive furnishings, which included personal bedding, along with a lot of other amenities not extended to other inmates. His cell had carpet, Uh, before other prisoners would be allowed to have one as well. He had a radio. He and the guards would sit in there, listen to his favorite radio shows. Some of his friends and family stayed at a hotel nearby and they'd come by and visit him every single day. He'd be flooded with visitors. Reminds me a bit of the prison situation that drug lords like Pablo Escobar and Joaquin El Chapo Guzman had at different points. Capone was a drug lord too, you know, prohibition era alcohol instead of cocaine. Like Pablo and El Chapo, so much money for bribes. By 1924, a decade before getting shipped to Alcatraz, Capone had his hand in various rackets, including prostitution rings, bootlegging, gambling houses, believed to be earning over 100000 a week, which is $1.6 million in today's dollar per week. A cool $83 million a year that he wasn't paying taxes on. So yeah, it gives him a lot of bribe money. Need to suck him properly someday. His biography is fascinating. Alphonse Gabriel Capone. Born January 27th, 1899 in Brooklyn to working class parents who had immigrated to America from Naples. Smart, big, strong, brutal kid who stopped going to Catholic school at the age of 14 despite being a promising student after he hit a nun who had hit him. So he didn't exactly stop going to school. He was kicked the fuck out for smacking a nun. Big Al never stood for any disrespect, at least not before, you know, he went to the rock. Alcatraz inmate number 293, Brian Conway, is to be believed. Well, he, he lost his intimidation abilities once he was on Alcatraz Island. Uh, before leaving school, Capone had caught the eye of neighborhood gangster Johnny Torrio. Johnny Two-Tones Torrio. No, just Johnny Torrio. Uh, who was running a local numbers and gambling operation. Lucky Luciano, another notorious Prohibition-era gangster, also ran with Torrio. Torrio left Brooklyn for Chicago in 1909 when Capone was just 10, but wouldn't forget him. 17 years older than Capone, Torrio would bounce back and forth from Brooklyn, Chicago for many years. Out of school, uh, Capone became involved with several small-time gangs in the area, like the Junior 40 Thieves, the Bowery Boys, the Brooklyn Rippers, and then eventually the powerful Five Points Gang uh, based in Lower Manhattan. With them, he'd get his Scarface nickname. 1917, when Capone is 18, uh, Torrio introduces him to fellow gangster Frankie Yale, who uses Capone as a bartender and bouncer 
on Coney Island at the Harvard Inn. Working the door as a tough guy one night, he says something indecent to a woman at the bar, supposedly, honey, you got a nice ass. And I mean that as a compliment, believe me. And her brother, another gangster, Johnny Two Tones, uh, no, uh, Frank Lucio, took enough offense to slash him across the face three times with a pocket knife. After that, he got the nickname Scarface, a nickname apparently he hated. And then uh, Frank sounds like a real tough motherfucker. Capone never avenged the slashing. Frank had mob ties and was protected. He was a made man. Instead, he would later hire Frank as his own bodyguard. In a few pictures I found of this dude online, Frank is fucking terrifying looking. Very dead in the eyes. <laughs> Just looks formidable. Around 1920 at Torio's invitation, Capone Jones Torio in Chicago, where Johnny had become uh, an influential lieutenant in the uh, Colosimo Mafia family working for Big Jim. Big Jim Colosimo, a.k.a. Diamond Jim. You got to kiss the ring. It's Diamond Jim's ring. He built a criminal empire in Chicago on prostitution, gambling, and racketeering. Uh, Prohibition began in 1920. Then there was a lot of new money to be made, selling booze, illegal brewing, distilling, distribution of beer and liquor. You know, viewed as growth industries by Johnny Torrio, working as an enforcer for Big Jim. He tells Big Jim, we got to move in on this alcohol. Come on, Big Jim, we got to make this alcohol money. And, uh, you know, Big Jim's like, nah, that's not what Diamond Jim does. Diamond Jim likes the girls, not the booze. And just a few months later, on his way to a meeting with Torrio, Big Jim gets whacked. Gunned down by unknown assailant, by an unknown assailant, excuse me. Uh, a lot of people think it was Capone. And then Torrio called the hit. Now, Torrio, put in charge of Chicago's mob enterprises. Capone's his right-hand man. Capone manages a popular mafia-ran nightclub for a while called the Four Deuces. Let's go out of the Four Deuces. Let's see Scarface. Uh, Torrio and Capone quickly expand their enterprises, develop interest in legitimate businesses, cleaning and dying, they get a lot of that money somewhere. They cultivate influence with a variety of uh, receptive public officials, labor unions, employees associations, a lot of bribe money going, getting tossed around. And then in 1925, after Torrio gets shot up in an assassination attempt and barely lives, he's done being a target as a crime syndicate leader. He semi-retires to Brooklyn, hands the keys to the castle over to Capone. Over the next few years, Capone builds a fearsome reputation in the ruthless Chicago gang rivalries of the period struggling to acquire, dominate, you know, racketeering rights to uh, several areas of Chicago. Various rival gangs are eliminated or nullified in the suburb of Cicero, actually soon becomes basically a little fiefdom for the Capone mob. Unlike most gangsters who hid in the shadows, Capone, very public, is taking daily trips to Chicago City Hall, opening up soup kitchens to feed the poor, lobbying for milk bottle dating to ensure the safety of the, the city's children. I'm a nice guy. Uh, city officials often embarrassed by the political strength of Capone. Uh, early on, the public glamorized Capone's activities. They saw him kind of as a modern-day Robin Hood. But then, he just got a bit too bloody for the public's taste. Public sentiment started to turn against him when it was believed that he ordered the death of famed local prosecutor, Billy McSwiggin. The young prosecutor had never tried to pin Capone. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. The young prosecutor had before had tried to pin Capone with uh, the violent murder of a rival gang member. He had a reputation for going after bootleggers. And in 1926, McSwiggin, Two of his friends gunned down with machine gun fire as they walked to a parked car. Capone quickly goes into hiding, fearing he's going to be tried for McSwiggin's murder. The public assumes he did it. He remains out of sight for nearly three months, then realized he can't live the rest of his life underground. He negotiates his surrender to the Chicago police. They think he did it, but they don't have enough evidence and they have to let him go and the public is outraged. Big Al had become the most powerful crime czar in Chicago's history. Seemed like he was above the law. Rumors abounded that many of Chicago's police officers, judges, other people, prosecutors are on his payroll more powerful than the mayor himself. By 1929, his empire estimated to be worth over $62 million. Also in 1929, he wages war on his most prominent bootlegging rival, George Bugs Moran, working with Johnny Two-Tones Riquetti. Uh, no, uh, Bugs was also one of uh, Chicago's principal gangsters. 
He was known to publicly speak out against Capone, maintain a sense of spiteful arrogance that was said to anger Capone so much, Moran became one of Al's routine topics of discussion. He was in his head. It was rumored that Capone gave orders to take Bugs down by assassinating his gang members out from underneath him. And he wanted them to work his way up the chain or work their way up the chain until they reached Bugs, take out his entire army, then kill him last. Uh, Capone, he's, uh, now he starts splitting time between Chicago and Florida, living lavishly in Palm Beach. And then he's believed to have assigned in 1929 one of his top associates, Machine Gun McGurn, nice, to mastermind the hit. McGurn had one of his bootleggers lure members of the Moran gang into a garage to buy liquor at an unreasonably cheap price. The deal's made, delivery is scheduled to take place on Valentine's Day. McGurn and his men await them in stolen police uniforms. When they arrive, McGurn's gang pretends to be police making a bust, order all of Moran's men to stand facing the wall. Thinking they just got caught by the police, seven members of the Moran gang turn to the wall, await arrest, and the McGurn and his men open fire with machine guns. Just fucking mow them down. Bugs, who saw the police car before stopping and thought it was a raid, he fled the scene, lives. Capone would actually never kill Bugs. Uh, Capone was credited with uh, what would be deemed the most famous mass murder in American history at that time, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. St. Valentine's Day Massacre receives national attention. Capone is glamorized in books, newspapers across the country, portrayed as a high-class, family-oriented, self-made gangster millionaire who would show no mercy to rival gangsters but would never hurt the general public. Now he has the attention of everybody, including law enforcement nationwide. The extra publicity backfires, attracts the attention of President Herbert Hoover. Having just started his presidential term, he demands Capone be brought to justice. Andrew Mellon, Secretary of the Treasury, pressured by Hoover to spearhead the government's battle against Capone. Mellon begins collecting as much evidence as he can against Big Al, but it's hard. Trying to bring to public attention his gang affiliations, bootlegging, prostitution rings, flagrant evasion of taxes. Despite all the attention, it would take almost five years and an intense undercover operation before Capone was finally put away in a lengthy prison sentence. After the Valentine's Day massacre really pisses off the FBI, who are already investigating him, uh, investigating him, they call him in to testify when he's reluctant to appear before a federal grand jury on March 12th, 1929, in response to a subpoena, subpoena, they prioritize taking him down. They can't get him on racketeering charges, so they start hitting him with just whatever they can get to stick. But his attorneys, uh, or when his attorneys say he's too sick to travel to Chicago for that questioning, bureau agents obtain statements to the effect that Capone had uh, recently been at the racetracks in Miami, made a plane trip to Bimini, a cruise to Nassau, uh, appeared on good health, or appeared to be in good health on those occasions. They get him for contempt of court an offense for which the penalty could be a year in prison and a $1,000 fine. He posts $5,000 bond. He's released. Then May 17th, 1929, Capone and his bodyguard arrested in Philadelphia for carrying concealed deadly weapons. They're just trying to bust him for anything. Within 16 hours, he's sentenced to, uh, you know, a year in, in jail. He serves his time in luxury. Cook County Jail released nine months later for good behavior, March 17, 1930. Then February 28, 1931, he's found guilty in federal court on uh, the contempt of court charge and sentenced to six months in Cook County Jail. So he goes there. Uh, sorry, that pra- the previous one was Philly. Now he's in Cook County Jail. Now while in jail, the U.S. Treasury Department is developing evidence on tax evasion charges. And on June 16th, 1931, they get him on tax evasion and prohibition charges. He boasts to the press that he'd struck a deal was only going to get two and a half years, but he fucked up. And the presiding judge informed him that the judge was not bound by the deal. Capone then changes his plea to not guilty. And then October 18th, 1931, he's convicted. November 24th, sentenced to 11 years in federal prison. So it took them all these years of they're just hounding him, basically like, you know, the, the federal government's criminal priority and all they can get on him is tax evasion. That's the best the feds could uh, stick on him. And that puts him into the federal prison system, sends him to Atlanta in 1932 on May 4th. He's initially given unlimited access to the warden. 
was said to maintain large reserves of cash hidden in his cell where he could generously tip guards who would assist him by yielding to special requests. That's the nicest way I've ever heard a bribe described. I'm not bribing you. Come on. Get out of here. I'm just, I'm tipping you. Well, can a guy tip anymore? Uh, Stay in Atlanta, pretty cushy, like I went over earlier. The feds don't care for that. So in 1934, Attorney General Homer Cummings, along with Sanford Bates, the head of federal prisons, they make arrangements to send him to Alcatraz. Basically, they made up a bullshit claim that they uh, heard he was trying to break out, which apparently he was not. And they do that to send him to Alcatraz. So in August of 34, with no formal notice, he's put on a railroad car with 52 other inmates and shipped to America's Devil Island. Uh, the original Devil's Island, I said I'd talk, to, talk about it a little, little bit, sounds a lot worse than Alcatraz. This place, we'll have to properly suck it someday. Little bigger, 35 acres instead of 22 and a half, uh, located nine miles, 14 kilometers off the coast of French Guiana in South America. When it first opened as a prison in 1852, it just uh, quickly became a dumping ground for anyone Emperor Napoleon III wanted to get out of France. And he's not that Napoleon, by the way, Napoleon's nephew. Uh, besides political prisoners, Devil's Island became home to hardened criminals, fostered a community of 80,000 murderers, thieves, and other hardened criminals at its peak. Man, way more prisoners in Alcatraz. And it quickly became notorious for hellish conditions. Prisoners were, were detained in dark cells, forbidden to talk, smoke, read, even sit before nightfall. Uh, they were locked up alone in tiny cells with openings in the ceilings. Guards could keep a close eye on them from a raised footbridge above them. Hot, humid, Dreadful living conditions. One in three inmates sent there would die from disease, hunger, or violence. 1938, the French government stopped sending prisoners to Devil's Island. 1953, the prison system there closed entirely. And, and again, we'll have to suck that hellhole that makes Alcatraz look like a fucking timeshare condo someday. Uh, back to Alcatraz now. Capone's rival in 1934. When he first shows up, Capone immediately tries to manipulate the system like he'd done in Atlanta. Warden Johnston, it is Johnston with a T, had a custom of meeting the new fish when they first arrived at Alcatraz, usually participated in their brief orientation. Johnson wrote in a later memoir, he had little trouble recognizing Capone. He saw him grinning, making sm smug comments out the side of his mouth to other inmates as he comes in. When it became her his turn to approach Warden Johnston, it appeared he wanted to show off to the other inmates, asking questions on their behalf in a leader-type role. Johnson, not having it, he quickly hands him his prison you know, number, ignores all his questions, orders him to get back in line with the other convicts. Capone wouldn't lead shit on the rock. And along with syphilis, uh, being stripped of power appeared to break him. Uh, during Capone's time on Alcatraz, he made several attempts to con Johnson into allowing him special privileges to try and give him money. All were denied. Johnson maintained that Capone would never be given special treatment and would just follow the rules like any other inmate. Capone eventually conceded. One day, apparently commented to Johnson, looks like Alcatraz has got me licked. He spent four and a half years in Alcatraz, held a variety of jobs there. His time there, not easy. He got into a fight with another inmate in the rec yard, placed in isolation for eight days early on. While working in the prison basement a little bit later, another inmate fucking stabbed him with a pair of shears. He was put in the prison hospital, released a few days later with a minor wound. A wound. Uh, eventually, he became symptomatic with syphilis, you know, as we went over. In uh, 1938, he was transferred to Terminal Island Prison in Southern California to serve out the remainder of his sentence, released in November of 1939. Then he went to Florida, uh, to live out the rest of his days where it was said his mental state had deteriorated to that of a 12-year-old child. And he died January 25th, 1947 in his Palm Island mansion from complications of syphilis. Uh, next up, George Machine Gun Kelly, one of the most famous gangsters from the Prohibition era, one of the highest profile criminals to ever be locked up in Alcatraz. Also arguably tougher than current emo and hip-hop artist Colson Baker, aka Machine Gun Kelly as well. Like a lot of his music, I think he's super talented. Kudos to his success for real, but his tough guy persona fucking cracks me up. Come on. He looks like he weighs about 30 pounds. 
he looks like his arm would break if he shook his hand too hard. Like he would legitimately have a hard time punching his way out of a paperback. Uh, today's machine gun was born George Kelly Barnes, July 18th, 1895, to a wealthy family living in Memphis, Tennessee. Kelly's early years as a child, essentially uneventful. His family raised him in a traditional household. Sounded like a pretty good household. His parents sent him to college. Uh, he enrolled in Mississippi State University to study agriculture in 1917. Wasn't the best student. Highest grade was a C plus and uh, basically PE. He was awarded for good physical hygiene. Wasn't a noted troublemaker either. I mean, he partied. He got into some trouble with faculty. Spent much of his academic career attempting to work off some demerits, but not that bad of a bad boy. But then he met a girl, Geneva Ramsey. Kelly quickly fell in love, made the abrupt decision to quit school, get married, and start fucking. Uh, he'd fathered two children with Geneva over the next few years without much of a plan for how to take care of his family. To make ends meet, he took a job as a cab driver in Memphis, working long hours, not making a lot of money. Him and Geneva struggling. Kelly leaves his job with the cab company to try and make uh, money somewhere else. Uh, pursues other avenues, which all are dead ends. At just 19, he finds himself without steady work, separates from his wife for a bit, takes up work as a small-time gangster, as a bootlegger. And what do you know? Sometimes crime pays. He begins to enjoy the financial rewards of his new trade, along with his growing notoriety. But Geneva doesn't care for it. She didn't want to be poor, also did not want to be married to a gangster. After being arrested on several occasions for illegal trafficking, Geneva leaves Kelly, or maybe Kelly, uh, you know, leaves Geneva. And he decides to leave Memphis with his new girlfriend and head west. He adopts the alias of George R. Kelly to help preserve the respect and name of his upstanding family back home. By 1927, Kelly's a seasoned gangster, having weathered several arrests, served various jail sentences. 1928, he's caught smuggling liquor into a reservation and is sentenced to three years in Leavenworth. When he gets out, he makes it to Oklahoma City, where he hooks up with a small-time bootlegger named Steve, named Steve Anderson. And he falls in love with Anderson's sexy mistress, Catherine Thorne a seasoned criminal herself. Thorne came from a family of outlaws and had been arrested for various charges ranging from robbery to prostitution. Thorne was twice divorced. Her second husband had been a bootlegger who had later been found shot to death under very suspicious circumstances. A lot of historians think that Thorne either shot him or hired someone else to. Up until his relationship with Thorne, Kelly had been a relatively small-time criminal. Catherine's influence would help change that and he eventually would become the FBI's public enemy number one. Actually became the first FBI public enemy number one. Uh, and became then later the first one caught in 1933. Here's what led to all that. Catherine purchased a machine gun for Kelly, like a good girlfriend does. Uh, actually, it was after they're married. And then pressured her husband to practice with it. She didn't fuck around. A lot of Lucifina in her. She marketed Kelly to her underground contacts and as a bad motherfucker not to be trifled with. She was known to take spent uh, machine gun cartridges, pass them around to acquaintances at uh, some underground drinking clubs, introducing them as souvenirs from her husband, Machine Gun Kelly. She loved a bad boy. She was, she was like a gangster's agent. To many, it was Catherine that started the entire Machine Gun Kelly persona. Investigators believe she was the big brain behind of, uh, all the successful bank robberies that they would pull off in Texas and Mississippi. Uh, starting in Minnesota, they went on a, a little uh, bank robbing spree before hitting Texas and Mississippi. They also hit like uh, Washington, Iowa, elsewhere. August of 1933, the FBI publishes wanted posters describing Kelly as an expert machine gunner and they create a public frenzy that will later place Kelly into the history books. Just before the FBI's posters are put out in July of 1933, Catherine and Kelly plot a scheme to kidnap wealthy oil tycoon and businessman Charles Urschel. Kelly carrying his trademark Tommy gun, two other men carrying pistols in her Urschel's mansion in Oklahoma City. The Urschel's playing a game of bridge uh, with some friends when Kelly and the other storm in threatening to blow everyone's head off. Urschel's taken into hiding on a rural uh, ranch in Texas and the Kelly gang makes demands for a $200,000 ransom. Urschel's family friend, E.E. E. Kirkpatrick, make drops, uh, made drop arrangements, delivers the ransom 
and denominations of $20 bills. They deliver it to the LaSalle Hotel in Kansas City July 30th, ending an eight-day ordeal. The following day, Urschel is released near Norman, Oklahoma. Casually walks into a restaurant and calls for a cab. Kelly had done it, pulled off the ransom. Also, he had left a trail for investigators to follow right back to him. Urschel was sharp and though blindfolded throughout the ordeal, he made sure his fingerprints were spread out everywhere, counted his footsteps to various areas when blindfolded, audible sounds of his surroundings were mentally cataloged, and then he gave all that info to the FBI's investigation. Nice! After splitting the ransom money with their accomplices, Catherine and Machine Gun start uh, state hopping, try to stay two steps ahead of law officials. From the several clues that Urschel was able to provide, the FBI quickly tracks down one of Kelly's conspirators. The bills that have been used for payment in the ransom had traceable serial records, and the Center Bureau of Investigation, now the FBI, started a nationwide search for Machine Gun Kelly. And all the papers, George and Catherine keep bouncing around in different states. Chicago's their main hub. They keep coming back there. They dye their hair. Uh, they enjoy a uh, lavish lifestyle for a few weeks. And then the couple, uh, when they're in Memphis, staying with a longtime friend, John Tishner, on the morning of September 26, 1933, Memphis police, along with FBI agents, raid the Tinchner house. Kelly yells out, G-Men, please don't shoot, when agents rush into his bedroom. He's found badly hungover from partying the night before, still in his pajamas. Catherine's still asleep when agents rush in or pass out. The couple quickly flown to Oklahoma where they stand trial. Both receive life sentences. Eventually, all their accomplices are apprehended and six of them also get life sentences. Damn. Kelly transferred to Leavenworth in Kansas. Catherine transferred to a federal prison in Cincinnati. Kelly, dumb enough to brag to the press that he's going to fucking get out. Uh, by Christmas, he's going to break his wife out. And then his cocky ass is sent to Alcatraz. In August 1934, Kelly, along with two of his accomplices, Albert Bates and Harvey, Harvey Bailey, transferred from Leavenworth by train to Alcatraz. Uh, dumb move. Maybe don't tell everyone you're going to break out if you actually plan on breaking out. Uh, arriving on September 4th, 1934, he'd be, uh, they'd be one, you know, among the first groups of the island's prisoners. Kelly would become inmate 117. At Alcatraz, Kelly became known as a guy who was uh, pretty full of shit. He apparently liked to brag about robberies and murders that he didn't commit. Although this was uh, an apparent point of frustration for several fellow prisoners, Warden Johnson considered him a model inmate. He talked a lot of shit, but he followed the rules. Kelly's life at Alcatraz pretty uneventful. He took a job as an altar boy in the prison chapel, worked in the laundry, held an administrative role in the industry's office for a long period of time, and generally served out his time pretty quietly. He seemed to feel remorse for his crimes, always felt that his wife, Catherine, and the accomplices were treated too harshly, given those life sentences. Uh, Kelly was returned to Leavenworth in 1951, died of a heart attack, July 18th, 1954, on his 59th birthday. His wife, co-conspirator, Catherine Kelly, Previously, Catherine Thorne, released from a prison a few years later for good behavior in 1958, took a job at an Oklahoma hospital as a bookkeeper. Despite her husband's violent nickname, Machine Gun Kelly never actually uh, thought to have killed anybody. An interesting footnote to this story, Charles Urschel, the guy Kelly and Catherine abducted and held for ransom, he would anonymously fund the college education of Catherine's daughter, Pauline. That wouldn't become public knowledge until 2003, 33 years after Urschel's death, when a book came out called Machine Gun Kelly's Last Stand. Okay, one more famous Alcatraz resident to talk about. Uh, this guy actually fascinated me the most. Jimmy Two-Tones Rigetti, come on. Sometimes he talk like this. You got a beef with me? You gonna bring that bean shooter? You think you can blow one down a Bruno like me? And sometimes he talk like this. Oh, when you're back up a telecrime, I thought I heard Chicago ladies, get the hell of me. Classic Jimmy Two-Tones. That's nonsense, you know Jimmy now. Uh, no, the dude who fascinated me the most was Roy G. Gardner. Born on January 5th, 1884. Largely forgotten now. I fucking love this story. I was talking to Kyler about this uh, when I drove him to school this morning. 
Uh, he grew up to grow up to be America's most infamous prison escapee. And for a time, the most celebrated outlaw escaped convict during the Roaring Twenties, known as the last great American train robber. During his criminal career, he stole over $350,000 in cash and securities, once had uh, a $5,000 reward put on his head three separate times in less than a year. Considered the most dangerous inmate in the history of Atlanta prison, dubbed by newspapers across the West uh, with names like the Smiling Bandit, the Mail Train Bandit, and King of the Escape Artists. One of the most notorious offenders of the Federal Bureau of Prisons, one of the most notorious inmates of Alcatraz, uh, one of the most ruthless criminals in all of American history. Uh, he was the most wanted criminal in America in 1921, now largely forgotten. Why? Well, he was active during an era not really celebrated for famous criminals. He was just a little early. He never lived as an outlaw on the Western frontier either, right? A little bit late. He was like in between Western outlaws and depression era gangsters. Roy Gardner was also a lone bandit, never in a famous gang. Born in Trenton, Missouri, one-time world's largest producer of Vienna sausages. Makes me think about those little smokies again. Not even kidding. Uh, back when the little town uh, uh, was around, you know, of around 6,000 now, had less than 1,000 people in it. Back in Trenton's early days, raised in Colorado Springs, Colorado, a city that, uh, to my knowledge, has never produced any Vienna sausages. So how cool could it be? Actually, I've heard it's pretty cool. Uh, Roy, handsome, charming, real ladies man, standing uh, just under six feet tall, short, curly auburn hair, blue eyes. Spent his early manhood years as a drifter in the Southwest, learning the trades of farrier, a uh, dude who trims and, you know, shoes horses, hooves, and is a miner. Uh, suppose he joined the U.S. Army around the age of 19 or 20 to escape the dangerous world of petty crime and the mining business, then deserted in 1906, drifted down to Mexico. Then he began his true criminal profession as a gun runner during the Mexican Revolution, smuggled and traded arms and ammo to uh, Venustiano Carranza's forces until he was captured by soldiers from uh, Victoriano Huerta's army and was sentenced to death by firing squad. But he escaped the first of many, many times. March 29th, 1909, the 25-year-old tough guy breaks out of a Mexican uh, jail, Mexico City jail, along with three other American prisoners with a daring attack on the soldiers slash guards, makes it back to the U.S., becomes a prize fighter in the American Southwest, good enough that uh, as a bare-knuckle uh, bare boxer that he became the sparring partner for heavyweight champion J.J. Jeffries. Jeffries takes him to his training camp in Northern California. Somebody write this dude's fucking screenplay already. Handsome, charismatic, becomes a drifter. Joins the army, deserts, runs guns for Mexican revolutionaries, overpowers guards to escape a firing squad, Mexico City, becomes a bare knuckle boxer, right? We're just getting started. Uh, the dude was a fucking walking can of whiffle. Uh, Gardner's boxing took him to San Francisco where he got really into gambling. Unfortunately, better at boxing than poker. And, uh, you know, he drank and gambled all of his boxing money away. To get more money for gambling, he robs a jewelry store on Market Street. He's arrested, spends a little time in San Quentin where he is then paroled for saving a guard's life during a violent riot. Put it in the movie. Next lands a job as a welder at Mare Island Navy Yard. Gets married, fathers a daughter, opens his own welding company, doing great. But then, gambling calls. Gambles all of his welding money away during a business trip in Tijuana at the horse track. <laughs> I fucking, fucking love this guy. He's a fucking wreck. By the dude was an adrenaline junkie. Just could not live a, a quiet, steady life. On the night of April 16th, 1920, outside of San Diego, the now 36-year-old gardener, Right? He wants more, some more gambling money. Robs a U.S. mail truck. Takes about $80,000 in cash and securities. He pulls it off, but then gets caught three days later. He's spotted trying to bury his loot. Now he's sentenced to 25 years at McNeil Island Federal Penitentiary for armed robbery. Publicly vows, tells the papers, he will never serve the sentence. And he won't. This is so fucking great. On June 5th, 1920, as he's being transported to prison on a train with two deputy U.S. marshals, Kavanaugh and Haig, 
somewhere outside of Portland, Oregon. He peers out a window and simply yells, hey, look at that deer. And they fucking fall for it. <laughs> Both marshals look. And then Cartner grabs Marshal Haig's gun from his holster, disarms Marshal Kavanaugh at gunpoint, handcuffs the two humiliated lawmen together, takes 200 bucks off him, jumps off of the fucking train and makes his way to Canada. Holy shit. And now because it naturally popped up into my head, every time I looked into this dude's story, I'd like to play a little bit of this from the Dukes of Hazzard. Gardner was an OG Duke of Hazard. Uh, the very next year, Gardner slips back into the state, starts robbing banks and mail trains. May 19th, 1921, Gardner's back in California, ties up mail clerk, uh, the mail clerk to train number 10 eastbound from Sacramento, robs the express car of $187,000. That's just under $3 million in today's money. The next morning, Gardner holds up another train because fuck it, why not? Train number 20 tells the engineer to throw up his hands or he'll blow his fucking head off. When the train reaches the Overland Limited in Roseville, California, the elusive bandit races down the tracks with an armful of his loot. <laughs> Someone recognizes him as Roy Gardner, the notorious outlaw, with a $5,000 reward on his head. And a little bit later, while he's staying at the Porter House Hotel, a convoy of police arrive and arrest Gardner while he's playing a game of poker. Fucking gambling. He loved it. He loved the rush. Now he gets sentenced to another 25 years in McNeil, McNeil Island for, you know, more armed robbery. Trying to reduce his sentence, he tells Southern Pacific Railroad detectives he'll lead him to the spot where he buried the $187,000. He'll give the money back. Officers find nothing, and then Gardner announces, ah, I guess I forgot where I buried that money. Clearly, he was just hoping he could figure out an escape, you know, while he was leading them in fucking nowhere. He's transported again to McNeil Island. This time, he's heavily shackled. They add an Oregon boot to him. The Oregon boot consisted of a heavy iron or lead band that locked around his ankle. To the band was bolted a heavy iron support strap that attached the heel of a heavy boot. This whole contraption weighed about 30 pounds. And it was just put on one leg to throw off his balance, you know, to keep him off balance all the time. He's shackled. He has his fucking Oregon boot on. He's again on a train headed to McNeil Island, this time guarded by two other U.S. Marshals, Mulhall and Wrinkle, two fast shooting veterans. During the journey, he asked to use the bathroom in which he had earlier fucking bribed somebody to hide a 32 caliber pistol for him. And they did that. Comes out of the bathroom with his pistol, points the gun at Mulhall, orders another prisoner to handcuff him and the other marshal to their seats, which they fucking do. He fucking escapes again. Oh my God. What the fuck? He relieves the officers of their weapons and cash, takes off his shackles, that Oregon boot, then hops onto another moving train. Like this is a movie, Right. Outside Castle Rock, Washington, this movie writes itself, largest manhunt in Pacific Coast history now begins. Another $5,000 reward, what I said. He eventually shows up in Centralia, Washington. He tries to hide his identity by plastering his face with bandages, leaving just one eye, kind of, you know, a little slit for it open. Tells the Oxford Staff Hotel when he checks in, he, you know, he burned himself pretty bad uh, near Tacoma. Proprietor Gertrude Howell and local officer Louis Sonny, they become suspicious of the bandage mystery man. And then when Howell finds a firearm in Gardner's hotel room, uh, accuses him of being the smiling bandit. Gardner fights back, but is overpowered by multiple men. The pilot in the room gets arrested, once in handcuffs, the doctor removes the bandages like a fucking Scooby-Doo movie. Reveals like, ha the notorious train robber. Sentenced to another 25 years. Heavily ironed again, finally actually makes it to McNeil Island. They bring him there. Six weeks into his sentence, he convinces two unlikable prisoners, Lawardus Bogart, Everett Impin, 
that he's paid off the guards in the towers should they want to escape. Labor Day, September 5th, 1921, at a prison baseball game, Gardner tells these two other dudes who think the people won't shoot at him, now, during the fifth inning, when someone hits a fly ball in the center field, uh, as the guards in the tower, you know, have their eyes on the ball and the runners. Gardner, Bogart, and Impen run 300 yards to a tall barbed wire fence where Gardner has fucking cut a hole somehow, and the three men make it to the pasture on the other side, bullets fucking whizzing past their heads, but then uh, Gardner gets shot in the leg, but then limps into the woods, Bogart gets shot at the same moment, badly wounded, and then Impen gets shot dead. Supposedly his dying words were, Gardner told us those fellows in the towers couldn't hit the broadside of a barn. Bogart later said that Gardner tricked them and used them as decoys to better his chances of escape, which he fucking did again. Guards <laughs> scoured the beaches, confiscated every boat on the shoreline, no trace of the dangerous outlaw. What the fuck? Just, just, Bo and Luke duking it. On out of there. Uh, making El Chapo. Looks like the average chump with all these crazy ass escapes. Uh, average escape, uh, after escaping, this crafty son of a bitch hides in the prison barn for a bit, drinks some cow's milk, <laughs> swims the choppy waters to nearby Fox Island where he eats some fucking fruit in the orchards to power up and then he's off to Oregon. I was telling Kyler about this and he's like, he's like, it's like Red Dead Redemption. It's like he was a fucking video game character and he's had to go power up with some milk. And he gets more health points with fruit and milk, and then he's fine. Just heals his bullet wound. Uh, then this maniac taunts marshals and detectives. He sends a letter to a Seattle newspaper saying, uh, "Come on and get me! Come on and get me!" He's now America's most wanted man. Makes it all the way down to Arizona, where he commits several more robberies before being captured by a mail clerk during a train robbery in Phoenix in the fall of 1921. Man, he had a busy ass 1921. He sends to another 25 years, like he gives a fuck at this point. Sent to Leavenworth. Headline scream, gangster Gardner brags, Leavenworth, Leavenworth will never hold me. It does, but still, he caused enough problems to uh, get transferred. Gardner, now known as the king of escape artists, transferred to Atlanta Federal Prison, known as the toughest prison in the country in 1925. 1926, he tries to tunnel onto the wall. <laughs> he saws through the bars of the shoe shop. He gets caught both times. Following year, he, he leads a prison break and, and an attempted escape uh, with two revolvers. He holds a captain and two guards hostage. But he fails again. They put him in solitary confinement for 20 straight months. After that long of a stretch in the hole, he's a little unhinged. And he's transferred again to a psychiatric hospital in Washington, D.C. to get his brain unscrambled. Then it's back to Atlanta. 1929, the warden describes Gardner as the most dangerous inmate in the history of Atlanta prison. That year begins a hunger strike. He protests prison food. He fucking threatens suicide. He's transferred to Leavenworth uh, again in 1930. Causes more problems. 1934, he's transferred to Alcatraz. One of the first hardened criminals during the prison's hardest years. He would describe Alcatraz as the toughest, hardest place in the world. In Alcatraz, his wife finally divorces him, tired of all his shenanigans. He works uh, and, and uh, supervises at the mat shop with fellow inmate Ralph Rowe. It's rumored that they planned an escape, uh, which Rowe would achieve with Ted Cole in December of 1937, but Rowe uh, yeah, then disappeared in the turbulent waters of San Francisco Bay, presumed to have drowned. Uh, then after all that, after all these escape attempts and robberies and numerous 25-year sentences, he gets released. On June 17th, 1938, he applied for clemency and the governor gave it to him. Unreal. He quickly, uh, his first you know, year out of uh, prison, publishes an autobiography called Helcatras. Interesting book that contains descriptions of his interesting life and you know stories about Capone, Machine Gun Kelly, others. Uh, Gardner writes much of the man manuscript or wrote it while he was in prison, Alcatraz. He sells this book then at a booth at the Golden Gate International Expo at San Francisco's Treasure Island in 1939. A 1939 movie called I Stole a Billion, based on his life. The movie's a failure. 
Gardner's life then spirals into, des- into destitution. He can't control his gambling. On January 10th, 1940, police find the one-time most wanted gangster and Western outlaw dead at 56 uh, by suicide from cyanide fumes and tear gas at the Hotel Governor in San Francisco. So, fuck! It makes it harder for a new movie to be made. Sad ending. Might have to leave that part out. Maybe uh, replace it with him pulling off one more bank heist. Come on! Just, just driving the General Lee over fucking river or something? Uh, Gardner meticulously noted his final wishes uh, in a heartfelt plea, not to mention the name of his daughter, in an effort to give her a fresh start, break the negative connotations he believed would continue to follow her after his death. The United Press pub- publicized details of his tragic death, writing, The last of the train robbers, a 20th century Jesse James, who cashed in on his, his chips with neatness and dispatch, with malice towards no one, and the hope of forgiveness of the heart. All right. Well, that quote makes his uh, ending a little bit less sad now. So crazy he was able to escape so many times but he never escaped from Alcatraz. Now, after all that, let's learn a little more about the prison's history and dig in further with some escape attempts in today's Time Suck Timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck Timeline. Long before Alcatraz became home to some of the most notorious outlaws in the U.S., it was known as a place to be avoided by Native Americans who believed it contained evil spirits. Uh, these Americans uh, called the Ohlone, a Miwok word meaning Western people, often utilized the island the same way it would be used later by the U.S. as a place of isolation or banish- banishment for members violating tribal laws. The island was destined to be an infamous prison. Despite the legends of evil spirits, Alcatraz also used by tribes sometimes as an area for gathering food, especially bird eggs and sea life. Uh, it took a bit for European explorers to find Alcatraz Island. Its unique position leaves it hidden inside the entrance to the bay. From a distance, it appears to be part of the coastline. And that, plus natural fog, led it to, uh, you know, not being discovered for many years. Spanish explorer Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo, who led the first European expedition that explored what is now the west coast of the U.S. in 1542 and 1543, passed right on by. 1579, English explorer Sir Francis Drake fails to notice it. Portuguese explorer Sebastian Rodriguez uh, Sermillo, who indirectly named San Francisco, even though he also failed to find the bay, went right by it in either 1595 or 1596. Finally, Spanish explorer Gaspar de Portola, who sailed to California to establish colonies, discovered the bay on Halloween of of 1769, incorrectly identifying it as the bay that Sermillo had named San Francisco, which is how its name came to be, St. Francis. First Europeans to visit Alcatraz Island were the Spanish when they, you know, showed up in 1769. Not long after, another Spanish explorer, Juan uh, Manuel de Ayala, uh, set out to chart and explore San Francisco Bay and on August 11, 1775, gave the island its name, writing, I named this island La Isla de los Alcatrazes because of their being so, because of their being so plentiful there. And that's, uh, you're talking about pelicans. This name translates to Isle of the Pelicans. And then later shortened to just uh, Pelicans, Alcatraz. Uh, the earliest recorded private owner of the island of Alcatraz is Julian Workman, to whom it was given by Mexican gover- uh, governor Pio Pico in June of 1846, with the understanding that Workman would build a lighthouse on it. Uh, he would not. He would sell it. In 1846, John C. Fremont would buy the island for $5,000. And then in 1848, after the end of the Mexican-American War, uh, California, along with the island, come under the control of the U.S., Gold discovered along the American River and the California gold rush begins. 
Not long before the U.S. Army realizes the strategic position of the island as a defensive site for San Francisco Bay, and they began the work of building a fortress atop the sandstone outcropping in 1853. Construction began with a temporary wharf, shops, barracks, and offices. Incorporating the land's ruggedness into the defense plan, the laborers blast the rock, lay brick, and stone to create steep walls around the island. By 1854, a lighthouse also completed and 11 cannons mounted. The first lighthouse erected on the Pacific coast. More buildings would soon be built. The first permanent armored detachment garrisoned there, uh, 1859. Captain Joseph Stewart, 86 men of Company H, 3rd U.S. Artillery, take command of Alcatraz. 11 soldiers arrive on the island for confinement. Shortly thereafter, the U.S. government's first prisoners there. During the Civil War era, Alcatraz used to imprison soldiers accused of desertion and other crimes. Uh, 1861, the island designated a residence for military offenders. 1863, J.M. Chapman, a Confederate privateer ship, seized its crew, arrested and imprisoned on Alcatraz. It prompts more construction on the island. The lower prison is built. Soon other structures are added and uh, it's on its way to becoming the rock. 1895, 19 members of the Hopi tribe imprisoned on Alcatraz for resisting the policy of forced education of their children and land allotment programs that they thought were shit. Uh, obviously very unfortunate. Uh, 1898, the Spanish-American War results in a surplus of prisoners and prison overcrowding at Alcatraz, time to build more prison space. 1900, the upper prison, Alcatraz's second prison, built on what was called the Parade Ground. 1907, Alcatraz designated as the Pacific Branch U.S. Military Prison. Uh, it's essentially decommissioned by the Army as a fortification, remains a you know prison. By 1908, the Army had begun a major rebuilding campaign, erecting a massive concrete cell house. The new cell house, Alcatraz's third prison, one that still stands today, uh, built by the convicts themselves, is completed and prisoners move in in 1912. Alcatraz is renamed the U.S. Disciplinary Barracks in 1915 for the next decade and a half, houses exclusively military criminals. Then in 1933, administration of Alcatraz transferred to the Federal Bureau of Prisons. And the true legend begins. While it is now open to civilian prisoners, 32 of the worst military prisoners will remain on the island in civilian custody now. The citizens of San Francisco not not overjoyed to have a federal penitentiary near them. Uh, throughout October 1933, the San Francisco Chronicle lists local group after local group after group who opposes it. Chief of Police William J. Quinn, the Police Commission, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors all speak out against it. An editorial in the Chronicle argues that Alcatraz is too close to the city. Professional gangers, uh, professional gangers, professional gangsters, it said, uh, would have outside friends nearby who could help them escape. It recounted that over the years, 17 military prisoners had successfully escaped by swimming or by stealing boats and another six had gotten away by one ruse or another. The Federation of Women's Clubs joins the uproar of protests to prove that you could definitely escape two young women. Doris McLeod and uh, Gloria Sigliano make separate and successful swims out to the island, but the feds don't care, and a new prison is built. November of 1933, the Attorney General selects James A. Johnston of San Francisco to be the first warden. The guy Whitey punched out, the guy who didn't fuck around, who uh, still wasn't afraid of inmates, though, after getting punched. The guy with that heart on for total silence. And he takes office as warden January 2nd, 1934. And then on August 11th of that year, the first group of federal prisoners arrive at the island. By June 30th, 1935, the Bureau of Prisons considers their new prison a success. They write, the establishment of this institution not only provided a secure place for the detention of the more difficult type of criminal, but has had a good effect upon discipline in our other penitentiaries also. No serious disturbance of any kind has been reported during the year. But then the very next year, the escape attempts begin. April 27th, 1936, while working his job burning trash at the incinerator, inmate Joe Bauer, serving time for armed robbery, 
begins climbing up and over the chain link fence at the island's edge. This wasn't a real thought out attempt. Just in full view of the guards, he's like, I'll just fucking climb over the fence. You know, they're like, hey man, don't do that. And he's like, nah, fuck you. And so they shoot him and he falls and he dies. So, over for 1. The next year, December 16th, 1937, 24-year-old Ted Cole, 31-year-old Ralph Rowe decide to give it a try, do what Bowers couldn't. Cole, a career criminal, had been sentenced to 30 years in prison in 1936 after a failed bank robbery in Oklahoma that involved a shootout with police. Also stabbed a cellmate to death in another prison. Escaped from prison before, committed some other crimes. Rowe, another career criminal from Oklahoma, serving a 99-year sentence for robbery. They worked in the mat shop in the Model Industries building. Over a period of time, while working there, they filed their way through the flat iron bars of a window. Bars there, not made out of the same tool-proof steel as cell bars. After climbing through the window, uh, they make their way down to the water's edge and disappear into San Francisco Bay. And it's believed that once the pair reached the shore, they used either old tires or oil barrels to construct a raft. This was after the sun went down. Uh, they are thought to have drowned, but their bodies were never found. Officials said the swift ebb tides at the time, an estimated seven to nine knots, would have swept even an expert swimmer out of the bay into the Pacific Ocean, and into that gaggle of Krakens. Maybe not the Kraken part. Also, they said the fog was so thick it made it impossible for someone trying to help them to find them, nor could the swimmers know whether or not they were swimming towards shore. A lot of people believe Roe and Cole swept out to open sea, uh, but could they have survived? Yeah, it's possible. Over the next few years, tips would come in that the F to the FBI that the pair were spotted here or there. In 1941, the San Francisco Chronicle reported uh, that the pair were living in South America, and maybe they were. Guessing they aren't there now, since both would be well over 100 years old. Um, there would be, of course, more escape attempts. So those two guys might have gotten away. There's a better one coming up later, but those two guys also might have gotten away. May 23rd, 1938, escape attempt number three. While at work in the woodworking shop in the Model Industries building, inmates James Limerick, Jimmy Lucas, Rufus Franklin attack unarmed correctional officer Royal Klein with a fucking hammer. And he dies from his injuries. Jesus Christ. They then climb under the roof in an attempt to disarm a correctional officer there on the roof tower. And that does not go as well for them. Officer Harold Stites shoots both Limerick and Franklin. And then Jimmy Lucas begs for his fucking life. Limerick dies from his uh, wounds. Both Lucas and Franklin receive life sentences for Klein's murder. Uh, they both would still later make parole though and be freed in later years. For the first three attempts, right? We have one hard fail. Dude gets shot to death. Uh, maybe two dudes get out. Another fails, uh, another fail where one inmate gets shot to death and the other two get life sentences. Fourth attempt uh, is happening January 13th, 1939. Group of five inmates give it a shot. Arthur Doc Barker. I believe we talked about him and the old Barker gang suck. Uh, Dale Stamphill, William Martin, Henry Young, and Rufus McCain all escaped from the isolation unit. By sawing through their individual flat iron cell bars and by then bending toolproof bars on a window and crawling out through that window and down to the water's edge. Correctional officers spot the men at the shoreline on the west side of the island. Martin, Young, McCain surrender rather than be shot. Barker and Stampill are shot. When they refuse to surrender, Barker dies from his injuries. Less than two years later, in December of 1940, Young will kill McCain in the prison, allegedly in self-defense. Young will explain at his later trial that animosity developed between the two from that failed escape attempt. When he finally got out of prison in 1972, Henry Young would jump, parole, and then disappear. Martin and Stamphill eventually get out of prison, fade into civilian obscurity. The upcoming 1940s, busy decade for correctional officers trying to keep the baddest of the bad on the island. May 21st, 1941, fifth escape attempt. This one got shut down real quick. Four inmates, Joe Kretzer, Sham Shockley, Arnold Kyle, Lloyd Barkdahl, take uh, several correction officers hostage while working in the industries area. But then the officers, including future, you know, uh, warden, Paul Madigan, are like, what are you fucking doing? You guys are going to get shot to death. And they're like, okay. And then they surrender. 
Uh, September 15th, 1941. While on garbage detail, John Bayliss attempts to escape. Attempt number six, another quick fail. <laughs> I love this one. He didn't realize how fucking cold the water was. And he just tried to swim. And then he was like, no, this is fucking too cold. And he just gave up and he just waited to be caught. <laughs> it, this was, it was just foggy. He snuck away from his work detail. He dipped in the water for a second. And he was like, whoo, ah, fuck that. And he surrendered peacefully. Later, while appearing in federal court in San Francisco, he would try again to escape, try to sneak out of the courtroom. Uh, they catch him. Not sure what ended up happening to him. He doesn't seem to have lived a life of particular interest to historians. Uh, April 14th, 1943, escape attempt number seven, four men. James Borman, Harold Brest, Floyd Hamilton, and Fred Hunter take two officers hostage while at work in the industries area. They climb out a window, make their way down to the water's edge. Also doesn't go well. One of the hostages, able to alert other officers, uh, shots are fired at Borman, Brest, and Hamilton while they try to swim away from the island. Hunter and Brest are apprehended. Borman hit by gunfire and just sinks below the water and drowns. Uh, Hamilton initially presume, presumed to have drowned. However, after hiding out for two days in a little cave on the shoreline, he makes his way back to the industries area where he's caught. Damn, he, he hit out for two days, then got caught. He would swim away at night. Maybe he was hoping to get some wood or something, you know, maybe float across the bay. Uh, all three of the guys who survived uh, this attempt would make it out of prison eventually. Hunter only had two years left on his sentence when he tried to escape. Uh, no easy task to get off the rock. So far, seven attempts, only two possible survivors. August 7th, 1943, attempt number eight. Hurin Ted Walters disappears from the prison laundry building and then is caught at the shoreline before he could even attempt to enter the bay. Fail. July 31st, 1945, attempt number nine. In one of the most ingenious attempts to get the fuck off the island, inmate John uh, Giles, able to take advantage of his job working at the loading dock, he unloads army laundry, you know, send to the island to be cleaned, and over time, he had stolen for himself an entire army uniform. And then he puts the uniform on, walks aboard an army launch, you know, to, to what he thinks is freedom. Unfortunately, he was discovered missing almost immediately. And the boat he got on was the wrong fucking boat. <laughs> it was headed for Angel Island, not San Francisco like he thought. And as soon as he set foot on Angel Island, you know, they just, there were some people waiting for him and they just take him back. It sounds like he didn't have a lot to lose for trying. He was 50 years old when he tried. He was serving life. He later dies in a prison in Oregon. Next up, escape number 10. And this is the big one. This is what happened May 2nd through the 4th, 1946. Uh, called both the Battle of Alcatraz and the Alcatraz Blastout. Started when six prisoners were able to overpower cell house officers, gain access to weapons and cell house keys, in effect taking control of the cell house. Their plan started off strong, but then began to fall apart when they realized they did not have the key to unlock the recreation yard door to actually get fucking outside. So they got out of their cells, they got some guns, but then they're still locked in the building. God damn it. Instead of giving up, Bernard Coy, John Kretzer, Marvin Hubbard, Sam Shockley, Miran Thompson, and Clarence Carnes decide to fight. Eventually, three of them, Shockley, Thompson, and Carnes, return to their cells, but not before officers are taken hostage and shot at point-blank range by Kretzer, reportedly encouraged by Shockley and Thompson. One officer, William Miller, dies from his injuries. A second officer, Harold Stites, the guy who shot James Limerick and Rufus Franklin back in that other escape attempt, number three in 1938, the guy who killed Limerick, he now gets shot and killed, attempting to regain control of the cell house. One of two officers uh, uh, who would, you know, die, would die in this battle, or I'm sorry, uh, yeah, he, he is one of two. Two officers would die in this battle and 14 others would be wounded. The U.S. Marines are called out to assist. And on May 4th, the uprising ends with the discovery of the bodies of Coy, Kretzer, Hubbard, who been shot by either law guards or law officers or, uh, you know, Marines. Shockley, Thompson, Carnes stood trial for the death of two officers. Shockley and Thompson received the death penalty. 
and are executed in the gas chamber at San Quentin, December 1948. Carnes, age 19, receives a second life sentence. Uh, despite having originally been given a life sentence in Oklahoma for murder before this battle, as well as a sentence of an additional 203 years on federal charges, Carnes will be paroled 27 years later at the age of 46 in 1973. Known as the Choctaw Kid, Boston gangster Whitey Bulger befriended him in Alcatraz and will later pay for his funeral casket. He will violate his parole twice and end up dying in prison. Escape attempt number 11, not nearly as dynamic. July 23rd, 1956. Inmate Floyd Wilson disappears from his job at the dock. <laughs> this one's just a funny one to me. He hides for several hours behind some rocks on the shoreline, and then they, they find him. Oh, Floyd. Doesn't sound like you really thought this one out. He's just going to hide behind some rocks on a tiny island and hope they don't find him. I feel like Floyd wasn't real good at hide and seek as a kid. You know, I bet he heard fairly often, uh, Floyd, we can see you. You're behind the tree. Just because you can't see us doesn't mean we can't see you. Uh, attempt 12. September 29th, 1958. We'll work on the garbage detail. Inmates Aaron Burgett and Clyde Johnson overpower a correctional officer, attempt to swim from the island. Johnson gets caught in the water. Burgett disappears. Did he make it? Definitely no. No, his body would be found uh, later, floating in the bay, two weeks later. Attempt 13. This is my favorite. On June 11th, 1962, the most famous of the 14 escape attempts occurs. An attempt made famous by Clint Eastwood in the 1979 movie Escape from Alcatraz. Sad to say I haven't seen it. It's a badass escape. Three inmates, Frank Morris and two brothers, John and Clarence Anglin, vanish from their cells overnight, never seen again. A fourth man, Alan West, believed by some to have been the mastermind, uh, but he didn't leave his cell. An investigation reveals an intricate escape plot that involved homemade drills to enlarge vent holes, false wall segments, realistic dummy heads with human hair placed in their beds so the inmates would not be missed during the nighttime counts. The, th uh, the three men exited through vent holes located in the rear walls of their cells after lights out, after bed check, right? They enlarged their vent holes, made false wall segments to conceal it. Behind the rear, rear wall of their cells was a utility corridor that had locked steel doors at either end. The three men climbed the utility pipes to the top of the cell block, gained access to the roof through an air vent that the men had previously bent the iron bars of that blocked it. They've worked on this one for a while. They climbed down a drain pipe on the northern end of the cell house, made their way to the water, where they had a fucking raft left that they had made. They used prison-issued raincoats, right, to, to make uh, life vests and to make this raft. A cell house search later turned up drills, heads, wall segments, other tools. Uh, the, a water search found two life vests, one in the bay, the other near the Golden Gate Bridge. Also found oars, letters, and photographs belonging to the Anglins that had been carefully wrapped to be watertight. No sign of the men. Several weeks later, a man's body dressed in blue clothing similar to the prison uniform found a short distance up the coast from San Francisco, uh, but the body too badly deteriorated to be identified. Most familiar with the escape attempt don't think that body belonged to an inmate. Morris and the Anglins officially listed as missing and presumed drowned, but did they drown? Or did more or one of them live? We'll never know for 100% certain. Many though, including San Francisco gate writer Andrew Charmings, who's also written for Atlantic or The Atlantic and Vice, thinks they made it. And I do too. He points out that his kids, John and Clarence Anglin, became strong swimmers in the frigid waters of Lake Michigan and that he believes Frank Morris to be smart enough to physically ready himself for just over one mile of swimming over the six months or more he spent preparing for his bid for freedom, or didn't need to swim because they had a fucking raft, a raft built over months with 50 raincoats glued together in the secret workshop, also had oars, and it wasn't stormy out. The Mythbusters guy successfully and pretty easily recreated this raft escape excursion in 2003. Andrew also points out that two and three bodies from suicides from the nearby Golden Gate Bridge are recovered, but none of their corpses were ever found. 
And evidence of a long-presumed FBI cover-up was confirmed in a National Geographic documentary in 2012. A U.S. Marshal reveals that, contrary to the original version of events, a previously unseen FBI report states that the escapee's raft was found on Angel Island and a car was stolen in Marin County, a blue 1955 Chevy near that. Coincidentally, a police report reveals that a blue Chevy with three men in it ran another car off the road in Stockton later that night. Authorities on Alcatraz and the FBI really wanted to push a narrative that these guys drowned because Alcatraz was really expensive to maintain. The only real justification for keeping it was the illusion of inescapability. The truth of them getting out would shatter that illusion, obviously. And still not done, in 2015, a photo emerges of the Anglin brothers, or what appears to be the Anglin brothers, standing next to a termite mound outside of Rio de Janeiro, down there in Brazil, taken by a family friend in 1975. The U.S. Marshals hired an expert to compare physical features and measurements in the photo to, you know, known photos of the Anglins. They concluded that the photo was taken in 1975 and that there was a, quote, high likelihood that the men photographed were Clarence and John Anglin. Looking at it myself, I'm like, yeah, fucking, yeah, it's them. Finally, handwriting analysis, uh, while it came up as inconclusive regarding a direct match, um, was done for a letter that was sent possibly by John Anglin to the San Francisco Police Department's Richmond Station in 2013. It stated, in part, my name is John Anglin. I escaped from Alcatraz in June of 1962 with my brother Clarence and Frank Morris. I'm 83 years old and in bad shape. I have cancer. Yes, we all made it that night, but barely. Verdict, I think those guys definitely escaped from the rock. I think it's, it's pretty fucking crazy. December 16th, 1962, one final attempt is made. Alcatraz inmate, number 417. James Jimmy Two-Tones Rigetti. Hail Nimrod. Go, Jimmy, go. Uh, Jimmy lost enough weight to flush himself down the toilet and pop out and drain his pipe on the edge of the island in the middle of the night. He could have easily swam away. He was a three-time YMCA Cook County breaststroke champion back in Illinois as a teenager. But when he waded out of the water, a log bumped into him. He thought it was a shark, and he squealed out. Okay, why is going to in the big sleep on that one? I thought it was out, but I'm not being able all over again. And that's well. By the time he was done, the guards found him with a spotlight. They shot him dead because they were fucking tired of his annoying voice. Rest in peace, Jimmy Two-Tones. Never forget. Final escape attempt. Number 14 for real now. Two inmates, John Paul Scott, Daryl Parker, Daryl Parker, <laughs> Daryl, uh, both in, incarcerated for bank robberies in addition to some other crimes, bent the bars of a kitchen window in their cell house, in a cell house basement, climbed out, made their way down to the water, jumped in, started swimming. Parker didn't make it very far. He was soon discovered just um, hanging out on a small outcropping rock a little ways from the island. Scott tried to swim towards San Francisco, but the current pulled him towards the Golden Gate Bridge he was found by several teenagers on the rocks near Fort Point beneath the bridge, taken to the military hospital at Presido or, or Presidio, God damn it, Presidio, Army base, suffering from shock and hypothermia, then returned to Alcatraz. Almost made it. How depressing. Made it all the way to the Golden Gate Bridge, makes it to land, and then just hauled right back. Yeah, Scott would later die in prison in 1987. Parker would be transferred to Leavenworth and later released. And that's it for escape attempts. Just a few months later, Alcatraz would close its doors as a functioning prison. On March 12th, 1963, Alcatraz prison in need of a lot of repairs, too expensive to maintain, shut down by Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy. Frank Weatherman, Alcatraz inmate, 1576, the last to walk out of the rock. When asked about his experiences there, he said, Alcatraz was never no good for nobody. Sounds fair. March 21st, 1963, it closes after almost three decades of operation. So expensive to maintain. An estimated three to five million was needed for restoration and maintenance work. Uh, and that figure did not include daily operating costs, which were much more at Alcatraz than any other federal prison. 1959, the daily per capita cost at Alcatraz, $10.10, .10, you know, per inmate, compared to $3 at Atlanta. 
The major expense was caused by the physical isolation of the island. Right, the exact reason islands have been used as prisons throughout history. That isolation meant that everything, food, supplies, water, fuel, all had to be brought by boat. Water alone, huge pain in the ass. The island has no source of fresh water, so nearly 1 million gallons of water were barged to the island each and every week. After the prison closed, Alcatraz basically is abandoned. Many ideas are proposed for the island, including a monument to the United Nations, a West Coast version of the Statue of Liberty, uh, even an idea for a shopping center, a hotel complex, could have been a fucking mall there. None of that comes to fruition. Next year, March 8th, March 8th 1964, Alcatraz uh, occupied by Native American activists. Uh, the protest proposed by Lakota Sioux activist Bel Vacatier and joined by 35 others last four hours is reported by, among others, the San Francisco Chronicle and San Francisco Examiner are reported on. An act of civil disobedience to illustrate troubles faced by Native Americans. Five years later, November 20th, 1969, Island again makes news uh, when a group of Native American Indians calling themselves Indians of all tribes claim Alcatraz as Indian land with the hope of creating a Native American cultural center and education complex on the island. Initially, public support for the cause is strong. Thousands of people from the general public, school kids, celebrities, hippies, Vietnam war pressers, etc., even Hell's Angels come to the island over the next 18 months. Unfortunately, uh, too many of them stay there and just kind of fuck around and party. Uh, Native American leadership could not control the situation. A lot of damage occurs, including a fire that destroys the lightkeeper or the lighthouse keeper's home and the warden's home and the officer's club. Activists living there now demand that the island's facilities be adapted, new structures built for the education center, et cetera, and uh, all their demands are ignored. June of 1971, after a 19-month occupation, federal marshals removed the remaining Native Americans who had not already left the island. 1972, Congress creates the Golden Gate National Recreation Area, Alcatraz Island, included as part of the new National Park Service Unit. Island opened to the public in fall of 1973, becomes one of the most popular park service sites in the country. More than a million visitors around the world visit the island each and every year. Now skipping ahead to the summer of 1966, a disenchanted Brigadier General Francis Hummel and his second command, Major Tom Baxter, lead a rogue group of U.S. Force Recon Marines to steal a stockpile of 16 VX gas-loaded M555 rockets. The next day, Hummel and his men seize control of Alcatraz, taking 81 tourists hostage. Hummel threatens to launch the rockets against San Francisco unless the U.S. government pays him $100 million. FBI, chemical warfare expert Stanley Goodspeed, Sent on an urgent mission with former British spy John Patrick Mason to stop the missile attack. Let me play just a little bit of the security camera footage from the documentary. My name's Stanley Goodspeed. I'm a chemical weapons specialist for the FBI. Uh, glass or plastic? What? Glass or plastic? Glass or plastic? Shut, Shut the fuck up! Because if the winds change, after you launch those uh -huh. rockets, we're all gonna die! Shut up! And you're gonna end up in either mm -hmm. a glass jar or a plastic bag! So yeah. what do you say you do the math? <laughs> Hand over the gun, uh -huh. and let's go find some rockets! Let's go find some rockets! That, of course, did not happen. That is the plot from the uh, 1996 Michael Bay film, The Rock. And that was Nicolas Cage, you just heard. So it kind of relates, you know, the movie took place in The Rock. Uh, today, Alcatraz, operated by the National Park Service, part of the Golden Gate National Recreation Area, open to tourists still. Visitors can reach the island by ferry from Pier 33 near Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco, like Lindsay and I did years ago. Now let's get the hell out of here. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. So much Alcatraz info. A federal prison on a tiny island in the coldest fuck waters of California's San Francisco Bay once housed some of America's most dangerous felons during its years of operation from 1934 to 1963. Among those who served time at the maximum security facility were the notorious gangsters Al, Scarface, Capone, Machine Gun Kelly, 
murderer Robert Birdman of Alcatraz Stroud. Despite many attempts, no inmate ever successfully escaped the rock. Well, maybe five did. But we don't know that for sure. I think three probably did. Today, historic Alcatraz Island, uh, once also the site of a U.S. military prison from the late 1850s to 1933, is a popular tourist destination and part of American folklore forever. A reminder of how we should all work very hard to not be sent to prison like Alcatraz because it sounds terrible. Told what to do all the time, no choice and what you get to eat. Everything's monitored, so many rules. Stuck around people you probably can't stand all the time, such tiny cells. I'm gonna do my best to be a good boy. Time now for today's top five takeaways. Time suck, top five takeaways. Number one, before Alcatraz was a maximum security prison for the naughty guys who wouldn't follow other prison's rules or kept trying to escape, it was a military fortification during the Civil War and then a military prison. Number two, Alcatraz, also the location of the very first lighthouse in North America along the Pacific coast. Number three, June 11th, 1962, Frank Morris. Brothers John, Clarence, England make it off Alcatraz and are never seen again. And I think they probably escaped. The rock just couldn't contain everyone. Number four, James, Jimmy Tutons Rigetti. Fake gun down, December 16th, 1962. After flushed himself down the fucking toilet. Rest in peace, Jimmy Tutones. Rest in peace, Jimmy Tutones. Number five, new info. Alcatraz Prison, allegedly one of the most haunted spots in the country, if not the world. Uh, the most famous cell on the ghost tours of Alcatraz is the dreaded cell 14D. One inmate, Rufus McCain, confined in that cell for over three years after an escape attempt. Shortly after being released from the hole, he stabbed another inmate to death, was acquitted, and according to legend, on the ground that cell 14D had done irreparable damage to his psyche. And because maybe some supernatural shit was going on. Or at least he thought there was. Claimed that this is the cell where an inmate died after screaming that a creature of some kind was going to kill him. Many visitors have said they felt extreme coldness wrapping around them in this room as if evil spirits are still present. Cell blocks A, B, and C have spooky legends as well. Many people that have toured the prison have said they can hear moaning, cries coming from empty cells. You may even run into a spirit known as the Butcher, ghost of a man killed there in the 40s. Is it actually haunted? You can take a tour and find out for yourself. Also, if you can't make it to San Francisco and you want some scares this October, you can listen to my paranormal, ho- uh, paranormal horror-focused podcast, one that is not comedic, not really, the one I co-host with the Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins, Scared to Death, all about the spooks. So many spooks. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The rock has been sucked. Learned a lot of interesting shit. I hope you did too. Uh, thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for all the help in making Time Suck every week. Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley. Thanks to Zach Flannery, the script keeper, for tackling the initial research on this win or on, on this one. Try to say week and one at the same time. Thanks to Bitelixer for keeping the Time Suck app running smooth and Logan Art Warlock Keith, our creative director, creating all the merch at badmagicmerch.com and more. And thanks to Liz the Enchantress Hernandez running Cold to the Curious Facebook page, our private Facebook page, currently Cold to the Curious too, along with the wonderful All Seen Eyes moderators. And she helps Logan with our socials. Next week on Time Suck, let's get so fucking weird. Let's talk about the dolphin house experiments. This is ridiculous. This is not just a big misdirect. It'll feel like it. In the summer of 1965, John C. Lilly, a medic and neuroscientist and complete fucking maniac, and his assistant, Margaret Howe, another maniac, would set up a partially flooded house on St. Thomas in the U.S. Virgin Islands, where Margaret would spend nearly 24 hours a day with a young bottlenose dolphin named Peter. The object of the experiment is to teach Peter to speak English. (laughs) To teach Peter to speak English and bridge the communication gap between humans and other species. Motivated by his belief that extraterrestrials <laughs> told him to study dolphins, 
and somehow actually funded by NASA, John Lilly would begin an experiment that quickly spun out of control, became one of the most infamous and weirdest government-sponsored scientific projects ever that we know about. How weird? Well, around week five, uh, Margaret Howe begins a sexual relationship with Peter the Dolphin. You heard me. Supposedly to help him focus, Margaret would let Peter get himself off against her and would even, <laughs> and would even jerk him off herself, sometimes up to three times a day. This really happened. And there's so much more to explore. We're covering all of it next week on Time Suck. Now let's head over to this week's Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. Gonna be hard for me to not focus on dolphin fucking. I'm gonna do my best. Let's start with some love today. Badass sucker and good dude. Cody S. Wrote a very kind message the other day. Here it is. I've written and deleted this message probably about 10 times. But I feel like I need to reach out and let you know what kind of effect you've had on me. I spent eight years in the Marine Corps. Don't have too much to show for it outside of earning my title as a Marine. I finished my eight-year contract in February, spent the prior half of this year with no connection to the military. This may seem strange or at least something that isn't talked about much, but I feel guilty. I feel guilty to have never been deployed or sent overseas and that men and women have died when I wasn't there to help. To this day, I feel inferior for that. Maybe I probably should talk to some groups about it. But who am I to be mopey about not being deployed when others have seen far worse. It feels out of place. To try and fix the issue, I joined the Michigan National Guard to have the opportunity to help my community during emergencies, ultimately be ready to defend my country if need be. Even though I re-enlisted and still serve in some form, I've still felt like I didn't do enough. I probably should talk to a group of therapists, but it seems like such a trivial issue that it doesn't seem as important as those who have actually been deployed, which is a view I sort of believe in myself. And some may see it as a benefit to have never been in, uh, never seen combat and not as a negative experience. I guess what I want to say is thank you. It's almost 2 a.m. on the 26th of September. After seeing your stand-up and traveling four hours just to see a show, I'm grateful, laughing to the point of crying multiple times, being able to truly laugh again, revitalize my mental health in ways I couldn't have imagined. I wish I could have gotten to see you after the show. With COVID, I know you don't do meet and greets anymore, but I still brought something for you in the slim chance I got to see you in person. I hope you continue to have the best, happiest life. Continue to hope for your success, to get bigger and better over time. Sorry for the long email, but even if you don't read this or respond, it makes me feel better to write to one of my most important sources of healing. Forever a loyal space lizard. Forever someone who will always try to see you live. Any chance I get, thank you, Cody S. Well, Cody, holy shit, man. First off, don't forget, uh, it doesn't matter what, you know, as far, as far as like, you know, your therapeutic needs, it doesn't matter what you've been through. You can you can go see a therapist because, you don't know, you're annoyed that you fucking, your roomie breathes weird through their nose, makes a whistle sound. Like, don't think of it as like, oh, this is too light. I've done the same thing. It can just be someone to bounce ideas up. I, I started doing it recently. And yeah, because I, I mean, just, you know, full transparency. I don't feel like I'm dealing with anything super heavy, but it's nice just to bitch to somebody about whatever. doesn't matter how fucking trivial it is. And they don't know you. They're not like part of your circle. So it's just, it's great in that sense. And, uh, and I think that guilt you feel, I think, I think what it really means is just you're a good fucking dude. You know, you have zero control over, you know, if you get deployed or not, you know, when you enlist, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, all you can control is whether you enlist or not. And you did that. That makes you a badass in my book. I sometimes feel guilty over never enlisting. You know, I try and uh, help support the military by donating to causes that support veterans. I try to support companies like Black Rifle Coffee Club that do so much for veterans. Not the same as serving, but better than nothing. And you've done way more fucking I ever have. Uh, and you didn't have to do anything. You're rooting for me. Well, I'm rooting for you. I want you to have the best, happiest life. I wish you nothing but success. Take it easier on yourself. Stay golden, pony boy. Keep laughing. Hail fucking Nimrod. You're, you're a great meat sack. Uh, funny sucker Amy F now. Shares a, a message about trying to spread the suck very unsuccessfully to her husband. I love this. She writes, what's up, Uncle Sucker? 
That's <laughs> a good one. My name is Amy. I've been a big fan of Time Suck for a couple of years now. I've also recently started binging Scared to Death. I, uh, it was the heavenly coupling of interesting topics and stupid humor that got me instantly hooked. My husband, on the other hand, not so much. I've tried to get him on board, but he always manages to walk in on me listening at the weirdest possible moments. Once during an incubus impression. <laughs> Once during Yahim Kroll's cow-fucking journal reading. <laughs> Once during your God-fucking-awful Mama Picton impression. You get the idea. So the other week, I'm listening to the Grim Sleeper episode while studying, and he walks in and says, oh, no, you listen to that idiot again? <laughs> I, of course, defended your weirdo ass and said, he's not an idiot. A lot of his episodes are actually very interesting. Of course, at that exact moment, you launch into a crack edition Whipple commercial. <laughs> we both just look at each other in silence as you carry on with an air horn screaming, Whipple, fuck your family. He shook his head and walked away. Somehow, I don't think he'll ever be joining the cult of curious. Uh, but I appreciate you, crack Whipple and all. Thanks for all the laughs. I have just one question for you. What does your dad think about uh, all the, he might be a serial killer jokes? Obviously, I think it's fucking hilarious, but I'm dying to know his take on it. I'm guessing he might agree with my husband. Hail Nimrod, keep on sucking, you beautiful idiot. <laughs> ah, I love it, Amy. Uh, yeah, my dad does agree with your husband. He's been shaking his head at me uh, for as long as I can remember. He's, he just always thought I was a total fucking weirdo and he doesn't understand it totally. He's not as weird. Uh, yeah, he loves me though. But yeah, but he think, he, I think he truly thinks I'm a fucking lunatic. He does not love the serial killer joke. He asked about it. I didn't have a good explanation. And then he just let it go. <laughs> he wasn't surprised though. He's just like, okay, whatever, one of your things. Uh, and yeah, he doesn't listen to the show because it's way too weird for him. Uh, interesting prison-related update now from Top Shelf Sucker, Holly Colmere. Holly writes, Dear Master Sucker, I'm way behind on the podcast. I just listened to the Joseph Duncan episode. I used to be pro-death penalty until I watched I, I Am a Killer on Netflix. One of the inmates talks about how general population was so bad, he killed an inmate so he could go to death row. If death row is considered a vacation to other inmates... Uh, because they're suffering in general population, then fuck that. They should suffer. If an inmate can torture these pieces of shit, then maybe we should let them. Interesting thought, Holly. Yeah. I think maybe we should make death row just not so nice. Maybe make it more like Alcatraz. Yeah, if you're cool just, you know, watching TV, reading books in your cell, being left alone, getting regular meals and good sleep, uh, not quite the same deterrent as a living hell, is it? I personally am still a fan of killing them. I know I'm in the minority in that view, but some of the dirtbags we've covered after what they've done, I would just love to have them fucking dead. I hate that they can experience any moments of joy. Uh, now for a freeway killer update, kind of. Updating my thoughts on America's historical intolerance towards homosexuality. Longtime listener Lauren Kickass Sack writes, glory be to Lucifina, Lucifina, Lucifina. As one of the few out lesbians in my small conservative town, I can tell you firsthand that homophobia is alive and well. My own mother called me an abomination to my face, Jesus Christ. And I grew up thinking that gay was uh, a bad word that described evil people who went against God. Fun. Even as recent as a couple of years ago, someone protested a drag event in my town and got so rowdy they were arrested by the police. I couldn't tell my neighbors or even my own grandparents about being gay because they wouldn't have taken it well. I've had people cut contact with me because I'm gay. I've had people at my super liberal New England college tell my roommate to move out and spread rumors about us because I'm gay. But now I don't care what everyone else thinks. I live with my girlfriend in a small apartment. I work as an engineer to help provide for us both. We hold hands in public and kiss. Not make out though. We're not that type of pro PDA couple. We're making a life for ourselves despite what society says we should be doing. I am out and proud to be so. Hail Nimrod. Uh, I've even come out of my job and luckily haven't faced any backlash so far. If anyone tries to fuck with me, I'll channel Lucifina and give him one hell of a fight. Also, uh, recently listened to another popular true crime podcast that rhymes with Ward and Whale. Well done. And to introduce a gay character, they asked, did anyone else hear a lisp after playing a voice clip? 
He didn't have a lisp. Thanks for not doing that. Faithfully, Lauren, longtime listener. Lauren, thank you for that update. Yeah, that's stereotypical lisping. That's such a fucking corny, outplayed stereotypical joke. I mean, do some gay men I've known have a, a bit of a lisp? Yes. Do most of them I've known not have that lisp? Yes. Terrible about your town. I wish more people would examine their homophobic stances. I mean, it is just so silly. And this is someone who had it when I was younger, you know, for largely religious reasons. I mean, like, it's just so fucking ridiculous. Like, what does it matter? If someone's a good neighbor or friend or, you know, coworker, why should anyone care if they prefer pussy or dick? It's just so silly. I would rather live in a town, but nothing but nice homosexuals. I'm the only straight person. Well, you know, maybe also Lindsay, because that would be, you know, awkward if she also wasn't straight. But like, we're the only straight people in a town full of, you know, nothing but nice homosexuals, way better than a town full of a bunch of straight, uptight, you know, assholes. When it, when it comes to all sexuality, if it's adult and consensual, why should anyone care what their neighbors, friends, coworkers, family are doing with their fun bits? I think those people should go focus on their own fun bits. Maybe come more, care less. Come more, care less. Uh, I hope things get better. And I appreciate you being a listener and, and writing in. Now, a uh, final update, a grim sleeper update of sorts from super sucker Mike Nishki. Mike writes, good afternoon, suck master general and to anyone else in the time suck apparatus who may see this message. I want to start by saying that I am a fan. I love the show, Indiana General. You always made me laugh. I appreciate that, especially over the last two years when the world fell apart. Now the not fun part, as a loyal sucker, I have found the time suck is we dumb and scared of this community to be a very welcoming and accepting group. I do appreciate that. But as a black sucker, I have to point out the hopefully unintentional habit of Dan to skew into the territory of apologist rhetoric and sometimes excuse, excuse making when it comes to issues of race and race related conflict. I get that not all white people are the problem and not every instance attributed to being racism actually is, but I am disheartened by Dan's tendency to try and point out, point to other reasons or to try to subtly dismiss that racism may be the actual reasoning behind certain conflicts. I understand that as a white meat sack, Dan will never understand our experience in this country. I don't expect him to, but he should know that racism touches our lives on a daily basis. It's not always flagrant. Sometimes it's extremely subtle, but you can feel it. It has a deep and lasting effect on our lives. I'm not saying he's wrong about everything he says. And I'm not trying to discredit his views on the world. Sometimes it is just enough to remind himself and the listeners that those are his opinions and that he does not understand our journey. Like I said, I find it disheartening uh, at rhetoric that seems apologist or dismissive, though I know he's not doing that on purpose. Unfortunately, there are a handful of episodes I have not been able to finish as I found them hard to deal with. I'm currently listening to the Grim Sleeper episode. While I agree, while I agree that not all Los Angeles officers are racist, there are those who are generally trying their best there is a long and well-documented epidemic of racism that runs through the Los Angeles law enforcement op apparatus. Google LS or LAPD gangs or LASD gangs, uh, uh, gang of, gangs of officers, often with uh, systemic approval to terrorize minority communities. The culture of I don't talk to the police while I understand is being unhelpful has been developed out of necessity. Like I said, I know that not all officers are racist, but when you know that a box of full of harmless snakes also contains a handful of venomous ones, you don't go digging into the box to try and sort them out. I will say that I do appreciate Dan's seeming uh, willingness to listen to the other side and at times admit that he doesn't understand. Sorry if this message is rambling. I'm unfortunately writing this on an emotional note, uh, so I am writing more with emotion than anything else. Like I said, love the Suckmaster. His attempt to teach us more about the world around us, but I felt it necessary to voice his opinion. Thank you so much if you took the time to read the whole thing. I, truth uh, yeah, I truly appreciate being heard. Love you all. Nimrod bless Mike. Well, Mike, I love you too, man. And I'm so glad you wrote it. Uh, yes, you are 100% right. I will never understand fully what it means to be black in America. Like there's there's no way I can. I can I can learn the history. I can listen to people's experiences. I, I can read and watch, but uh, I will never fully understand. 
as far as being an apologist, I do see what you're saying. Uh, I really do. It, it, it does come from a good place. Like, okay, in the Grim Sleeper example, the LAPD for sure does have a long history of racist behavior. I, I did try to mention that. And, and that for sure did lead, absolutely, to the don't snitch culture, for sure. Uh, but if the community of South Central continues to carry the don't snitch culture forward, more violent criminals like Lonnie Franklin will prey on members of the same community and get away with crimes, which I don't want. That's where I was trying to come from with the, it wasn't all the LAPD's fault. It was also the community's fault. I just try to be fair. I, I try not to let some notion of white guilt stop me from judging a black community just as harshly as I would judge a white community. I, I don't want to give anyone any preferential treatment. That's what I'm trying to do. Be less emotional, more objective with the don't snitch argument. I just look at it like this. If I'm in grade school and I report bad behavior to my first grade teacher and I get into trouble for being a tattletale because that teacher's an asshole who doesn't like me. And then I do that again in second grade and I get in trouble again. And then the same thing happens in third grade. And then in fourth grade, I watch a huge bully beat the shit out of a smaller classmate day after day. And I don't say anything because I don't want to get in trouble again. And then the bully kills that kid. Isn't the blood a little bit on my hands too? Fucking sucks that I had three shitty teachers in a row. That doesn't fully excuse me for not doing what's right the fourth time around. I hope that crazy analogy makes sense. Again, I'm just trying to look at things objectively. Yes, that culture, don't say, does come from documented racism within systemic racism within the LAPD. But if that culture isn't removed or lessened at some point, it just further harms the community there, which is still, you know, largely African-American. And I just don't want to see that. I just want to see, you know, any color of meat sacks unnecessarily harmed. It just bothered me that not just the LAPD, but a lot of community members seem to view those women's lives as disposable. Uh, and I am sorry that there is such a fucking history in this country of dudes who look, frankly, a lot like me being really fucking terrible to dudes who look like you. Uh, it's so fucking stupid, so unnecessary, just like we talked about with the homophobia before. So it's fuck, It's arguably, well, it's the same absurd. It's the same absurd. I was gonna say arguably more absurd only because, you know, someone who is black, if you're racist, you're not even letting them figure out, like you're not gonna take a second to figure out who they are as far as you do with sexual preference. You're immediately just being like, nap, fuck them, fuck them. Yeah, it's, I hope we get past it someday. I, I do think we will someday. I think it's gonna take a while. I think we will. So, so hail Nimrod. Uh, I do appreciate your viewpoint. I do love a, a contrasting, dissenting viewpoint. And if, you, and if you're listening and you have them, send them in. I want to get better. I want to evolve. I'm not here just for, you know, hand jobs and fluff. And, uh, and again, I hope you like this episode and I look forward to next week's fucking dolphins. Sex going to get weird. Hail Nimrod, everyone. Thanks for listening. Thanks time suckers. I needed that. We all did. And that's it. We did it. Another Bad Magic Productions podcast meets sex. Please don't try and escape from prison this week. It's, it's fucking harder. It's way harder now with all the advances in surveillance. You know, being able to track someone's digital footprint, even if you do get out, maybe just pass the time in your cell by continuing to, to keep on sucking. Bad Magic Productions. Oh, Waylon Jennings. I can listen to this song all day long. Just it's on a loop. Never meaning no harm. Beats all you never saw been in trouble with. And the law since the day it was born. Roy Gardner, how about those escape attempts? Straightening the curves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Flattening the hills. 
Maybe you would have the General Lee. You would have never gotten caught. Just, just kept on driving. Nah, probably not. Probably would have fucking gambled. Lots more trains. <laughs>